Welcome to the Movie Planet Season 7, Episode 2. This week, we are talking about 1998's The Big Lebowski. With Joe. Walter, what is the point? Look, we all know who is at fault here. What the fuck are you talking about? Huh? No, what the fuck are you? I'm not. And Steve. I'm the dude. So that's what you call me, you know? Uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, Duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. Welcome to the Movie Planet. Joining me is the Walter to my Donnie, Steve. How you doing? How you doing, pal? You know, these last 24 hours have been an up and down roller coaster for me, just kind of like Walter Sobchak's character. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so, there, there's a little bit of a chemical imbalance there. Yeah, it's, uh, but uh, you know what? I'll set it before and I'll say it again. It's always great to be back. Well, it is good to have you back and hopefully for many more. Try to squeeze them in where we can with you. <clears throat> uh, it's getting tough because you know what? I'm going to be honest. It came down to watching this movie and I was just like, oh. Not in the mood to do it. Oh, no, really you and I both. It, but but I had to do it. But then once I got into it, I was just like, it was like riding a bike. It really was, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. A bike and with this square is wheels. Enjoy. This is the part that I enjoy is talking about it. It's just doing the homework. Nobody likes doing homework. A bike with but square wheels. Yeah, and no seat. No seat. Yeah. Uh, well, this week, obviously, you have nominated the Big Lebowski. For the crime movie pantheon, not the comedy, the crime movie pantheon. Uh, and that pantheon consists of seven and only seven films. Right now, there are not a whole lot in there. There is just two movies. One of them is a Coen Brother movies. The number one spot is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, which came out two years after this movie did. Oh, okay. Yes. And the second one is Catch Me If You Can. Gotcha. Okay. Another, another great one. But uh, now the fun part, Steve. Uh, do you want to alter any of your grades from previous shows? And if so, what is your reasoning for your grade change? Now, this is fun because every time we do this, you always have something to provide. Well, see, I thought you were going to be a little bit more prepared than this. And I thought you were going to have that. Uh, what's it called? I don't know. We're going to have the pantheons up and ready to go, but I'll, I have to open it. So that's okay. That's okay. Um, it's been a while since I've done a video one, Steve. True. Do I see, you know what? I, when I saw this question, I did not have anything off the top of my head. And I have some fun look, updates for you. I, well, I mean, I look at the crime ones and I wasn't sure if I gave one for catch me if you can, which I did yep. in 88. Still stick with that. Yep. And our brother, where art thou? I have not seen, but I've seen like 25% of it. If, Okay. If you like The Big Lebowski, there's a good chance you will love Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Oh, I agree. Yeah. And the movie before that, before The Big Lebowski that the Coen brothers did was Fargo. I've never seen Fargo. Another one. So now I'm curious, what Coen brother movies have you seen? Now I'm, now I want to, pick your brain here because if this is the only one it makes sense why you hold it in such high regard all right so i'm looking oh there is another one <laughs> um 
I'm looking at there. So, No Country for Old Men, never seen it. Okay. True Grit, never seen it. One that I have seen that I loved, I thought it was hilarious. Burn After Reading. Okay. Okay. So, if you were to put one over the other, would you put Burn above Big Lebowski or Lebowski over Burn? Yes. (laughs) I would put, sorry. I would put Big Lebowski over Burn, but I mean, they're almost right there. Okay. Uh, let's see here. You, I'm guessing you what? didn't see it. Is this a, I have not seen this. This came out in 2019. What? It's called The Jesus Rolls. Yes, that came out, but okay. I'm looking at their director. Are you looking at writer? Yeah, you're looking uh, at the writers. I'm just looking at, I just typed in Coen Brothers movies. Okay, so writers, okay, so yeah, The Jesus Rolls is a side, it's a side quest of Lebowski, which it's about the Jesus. I'm not watching it. And you should. I, I, I don't want to watch it, nope. Look at the rating on IMDb. It's a 4.4 out of 10. Um, Yeah, so there was a... Lady Killers, I've seen a little bit of, but I've never seen the whole thing. But that's about it. Did you see Raising Arizona? No. Okay. So the okay. So there's a few that you need to at some point check out. Raising Arizona is Nicolas Cage. Uh, it's Nicolas Cage. <laughs> Fargo is a crime that takes place in Minnesota. What kind? <sighs> I've heard mixed review. I don't know. Or what Fargo, kind of Fargo, North is. Dakota. I'm sorry. I don't know what kind of movie this is. I thought it was a drama, like an intense movie, but it's funny. Fargo? Yes. Oh, it's everything. It's everything. It's a crime first. Uh, but that's when the world met William H. Macy for the first time. Oh. Yeah, uh, but then he did Big Lebowski, and then they did Oh Brother Where Art Thou, and that's kind of like that that threesome right there. That sounded weird. That three movie uh, group right there from ninety six to two thousand is really like the peak of Coen Brothers. Okay. Yeah, uh, most people like at least two out of three of those. And then I've always heard. Okay, this is screenplay by. Joel and Ethan, uh, No Country for Old Men. If that one won Academy Awards, I yes. can't I can't stand the movie, but I know everybody else likes it. I have not seen it. I've seen like snip I've seen clips of it where it draws me in. Yeah. Um, but that's about it. Fair enough. Fair enough. There has been some other updates here. Uh since uh, you've been on the show, uh, uh had a uh, what's his name? Josh on. And Josh gave his grades please tell me he put solo back in the global killer he has not that'll seen, never go back there he has not JC. seen solo uh okay so he gave his 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 grades for the nolan batman trilogy okay yeah so batman begins he gave a b2 which was exactly what you gave it okay uh the dark knight he gave an a minus two what knocked it down for him? Um, the same thing that I knocked my grade down for it on, 
this time. Uh, I went from a hundred to a ninety, an A. I went from an A plus to an A on this one. I okay, so like a ninety-five. Yeah, ninety-five, okay. and Josh is a ninety. Josh is still the low man on it, but his reasoning for it is the same as mine, which is that um, it doesn't fit in the story. When you look at Batman Begins all the way through Dark Knight Returns, it's the outlier because it has nothing to do with Ra's al Ghul. It has nothing to do with anything else. And it almost feels like they did a side quest. And then when they went to Dark Knight Rises, they got back on the ship again. And you probably could get away with, if aside from learning about who Harvey Dent is in the Dark Knight, you could take out that whole movie and it doesn't change the story going from Batman Begins to Dark Knight Rises. Now I'd be curious to see what your thoughts are if you go from Batman Begins and then watch Dark Knight Rises. Well, it's the, the reason I did this was because it's the same rationale I did with A New Hope, which is that when you look at A New Hope, it's awesome. But then when you surround it with one through six, you realize this thing doesn't fit in some of the things that they're trying to say. And that's why I ultimately knocked A New Hope down a little bit. So I got to do the same thing here. I got to be fair to The Dark Knight. So let me be clear. It's still an A. I just have it as a 95. It's still in the Pantheon. And it's still okay. above Doctor Strange. Well, he's still in there. But Deadpool, Deadpool is above it still. Uh I still have yet to rewatch that. I know, Steve. <laughs> I know. Uh, now, there's another change here. Uh, he gave his grades for the Lord of the Rings movies. Oh. Yes. So for The Fellowship of the Ring, he gave an A. For The Two Towers, he gave an A. And for The Return of the King, A+. Which is almost in line with what you had. He was high. Actually, he was higher on Two Towers than I was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... I think I got to go back to what you said maybe a minute ago. There's still A's. <laughs> <laughs> There's still A's. It just to I what mean, degree of excellence is it? <laughs> yeah, I, I. Well, I got. I just remember loving Two Towers so much. I got yeah. one more. I got one more for you. He gave his grade for Rogue One. Hold on. No, I'm not even gonna look. Go ahead. Okay. He gave it a B. Okay. He gave it a B. He puts it on the same grade as The Force Awakens and Return of the Jedi. For him, Rogue One is better than Revenge of the Sith. Steve just left the show. <laughs> he gave Revenge of the Sith a C plus. Oh, and he just pounded his white Caucasian. That sounded awful, actually. But <laughs> that's a drink, everybody. Not a human being living in the room with him. Okay, it's also above the Phantom Menace. It's and it's above Attack of the Clones. Oh. Oh, wait a second. He put Rogue One in line with the Rise of Skywalker, which he also gave a B. But I think it's I think the I think his grades for seven, eight, and nine are gonna change because uh we were talking on the four hour bonus piece on his show, 
And he didn't seem as high on the Disney Star Wars movies all of a sudden. So no. I'm, I'm okay. wondering, because he gave Last Jedi an A. So that's why I'm like, I think I can manipulate him a little bit here to knock this down. Because remember, he loves movies that are fuck you. Yeah, that's true. And that kind of, that that is, oh, it starts off as a fuck you. It, yeah, a fuck you to everybody that cares about Star Wars. Yeah, and that's why it's <laughs> terrible. I It's agree. not Star Wars. It oh, is not okay. Star Wars. So I'm looking at this, and I, it looks like it dropped Revenge of the Sith to number four. Right yes. above it is Return of the Jedi. Yep. I'm not happy about it, but I'm okay with it. I can accept that. Okay. Return of the Jedi is in my it it, it ends beautifully. It ends the hexology perfect. And Revenge of the Sith, it doesn't end things, but it brings things together very well. It's like all the questions in that movie. The, the big ones that we kind of knew yeah. were finally answered. Like it felt completed, but it was just beginning, if that makes sense. No, it was the perfect peak for the darkest days of the Empire about to start. Yes. Yeah. Um, and Empire is obviously in first place of all the Star Wars, but our boy Dune is number one. I, I, you know, cling, cling, cling. Uh, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Our boy. I, I can't. I can't. Skirt, skirt. <laughs> drip, splash, water, drip, drip splash, splash, water. water. <laughs> um, I can't. When I see Dune 2, I'm just going to be like. <laughs> I'm going to be like, don't screw this up. I don't. I won't be able to take him seriously on on camera. But no, I I'm still. I can't wait for part two to come out. When does that come out? By the way, I, you know what? Let's see. Dune release date twenty. It's not twenty twenty three. I know that. Oh well. I, yeah. Uh, kind of nice if it right was. now. It says March fourth of twenty twenty four. Okay. So That's in three months. In three months. All right. Two months from when we're recording this. Okay. Um, well, now that we've handled that business, <clears throat> let's get down to business. This week, we are talking about 1998's The Big Lebowski, a movie made for about $15 million that brought in $46.1 million. I mean... Is that number right? Just 46.1? is to break even... <laughs> they did it three times over they did it yeah exactly so that's good no it's that's that's a that's a great way to look at it steve and that's just the theater right that yes okay so i mean no this movie was i'll say this this movie probably made more money on video cassette than it did in the theater from countless college students grabbing the yeah. big lebowski going hey Let's watch this one scene and have fun. Oh, there are multiple scenes in here that you can have fun with. But uh, I'm sure that even those diehard fans, because it is a cult 
following movie. Oh, yes. They probably had to buy more than one copy because it was just always played. Maybe. We'll never know. Written by Ethan and Joel Cohen, directed by Joel Cohen, music by Carter Burwell. Uh, it opened March 6th, 1998. It was, it opened up the second week of Titanic. Go on beating that. It also, it opened up with three other movies, U.S. Marshals, Twilight, and Hush. And it was okay. fourth amongst all those. <laughs> well, you know, I'm surprised U.S. Marshals did that much with Titanic still in there well, for only one week. <laughs> remember, U.S. Marshals is coming off of the fugitive thing because it was Tommy Lee Jones. And people loved his performance of Tommy Lee Jones. They were like, U.S. Marshals is going to be awesome. And it was okay. Yeah. Okay. I guess it's right in that hype train. Um, I mean, Titanic, it was amazing. I mean, I know part of that 17 million, I think there's like probably about like $30 that I contributed to. <laughs> Back then, that's probably at least three viewings. <laughs> it got beat by the wedding singer in its second week. I gotta go on record to saying I've never seen this, the Wedding Singer. Oh, it's a it's and it's one of the it's one of the better Adam Sandler movies. And my wife just her jaw drops every time I say that. That's okay. Which uh, is crazy because one of our many songs during our wedding is from the Wedding Singer. Oh, want to grow old with you? Yes, it is. Uh huh. Uh, the cake cutting scene. The other movies that were out in theaters at the time: Goodwill Hunting, As Good as It Gets, Dark City. And the borrowers, uh, those were in their third, fifth, fourth, and ninth respectively weeks. Uh, but Titanic was the big, big daddy still. Brought in seventeen million that weekend. Doesn't seem like a whole lot now, but that was big then. In three thousand theaters. Yeah, and Big Lebowski was only in only one thousand two hundred seven. That's probably why I didn't see it. Probably wasn't at the theater when I went to go. That <laughs> and it's like, what the heck is this? Yeah. I mean, I was in high school. Well, it was rated R. So maybe you couldn't go because it's rated R, you know. Touche. You weren't yeah. 18. Uh, Runtime is an hour and 57 minutes, starring Jeff Bridges as The Dude, John Goodman as Walter Subcheck. Subcheck or Subcheck? Subcheck. Thank you. Uh, Julian Moore as Maude Lebowski. Steve Buscemi as Donnie. David Hiddleston as The Big Lebowski. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman as Brant. Tara Reid as Bunny. John Turturro as your boy Jesus. Jesus Quintana. Uh, same said it, man. Sam Elliott as The Stranger. That is his actual credited name. Mm -hmm. Former porn star of the 90s, Asia Carrera as Sherry in the movie Log Jammin'. And Peter, I know that. And Peter Stormare as Carl Hungus from Log Jammin', the porno. <laughs> That's a great name. Which one? Huh? Car Carl Hungus. <laughs> Carl Hungus. <laughs> I, it's all good. This is one of those movies where I kept going, is that? Is that? Is that? And then you start going to periphery characters. You're like, okay, who else is in the background there? Like, we're in the, it, it, they did the grainy, grainy porno on there. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I noticed is Peter Stormare. And I'm like, is that the devil from Constantine? <laughs> well he's in a porno <laughs> yeah uh, according to IMDB this movie had one tagline what okay so the four tag it didn't one it had four I didn't read that right 
anyway, the first one was, they figured he was lazy, time-wasting slacker. They were right. The second one is, her life was in their hands. Now her toe is in the mail. The third one, times like these call for a big Lebowski. And the number four, it takes guys as simple as the dude and Walter to make a story this complicated, and they'd really rather be bowling. I like the last one. I I think it's the most appropriate one. Yeah. It is the most appropriate one. Uh, do you remember seeing this for the first time, Steve? Tell us a tale. So I didn't really do much as a young wee lad in high school, and I got to get the full experience of life in college. I went to Central Michigan University, and I, I went in blind. And one of my roommates, Brian, he loved this movie. Go Broncos, right? <laughs> Fire up ships. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. Western. Western, that's what I'm thinking of. Um, my roommate, Brian, he loved this movie so much, he watched it on a loop. I think he had, he was probably one of the ones who had multiple cassettes. Oh, okay. Uh, he made this movie part of his vocabulary. Like Every time you talk to him, he always had a one-liner from this movie. Mm-hmm. He convinced me finally to give it a watch, and it just became an instant classic for me, which is tough because if you put a movie with a bar really high, it's tough for me to kind of get to that bar. Um, and the, I watched it for the first time and it delivered. I was on board with it. Now, I wasn't to the point where I had it in the background, put it on myself yeah. on a loop, but it's just like, what do you want to do tonight? Let's put it in the big basket. I'm like, all right. And we probably poured ourselves a white Russian <laughs> and, uh, you know, had at it to the point where, I think we eventually joined a bowling league and we could not stop quoting this movie on every little thing that happened. So what is your, what is your favorite quote from this movie? Oh, that is, that's tough. It's probably, well, uh, I I know what it is because you use it all the time, man. That's the one. (laughs) That's the one. Yeah. But it's like every time the Jesus, like I have that, down like the, anytime John Tutorial talks, I have that like part memorized because I loved every time that he was on there. Yeah. So, what about you? When did you see it? Okay, I didn't see this until I was late in my twenties. Uh, I think I missed my window on this one. Uh, kind of like Boondock Saints, a movie that everybody else seems to love because they saw it in college, and you know it's snappy dialogue and Quentin Tarantino like action, and you know, and it's it, it was. You know, a cult classic, much like yeah. this one. Uh, and I remember thinking the same thing when I did finally see Lebowski as I did with Saints, which was, this is what everyone's talking about. This is boring. Uh, I, 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 so I think I missed my window. Now, I, that is not to say that the things that I saw or heard in college don't have a weird place in my heart that I will defend until I die. I had a roommate also who played something on a loop that drove me up a fucking wall every time I'd get home. Simon and Garfunkel. Oh. Constantly. And I couldn't stand Simon and Garfunkel. Rock. There you go. Uh, and <laughs> But three years after leaving Central, because that's where I was hearing it all the time, uh, I'm, on, I'm, on, I'm listening to the radio and Simon and Garfunkel pops out. And all of a sudden I get that little warm feeling like, oh, 
that was a great year. Yeah. That was a really good year. And it reminds me of all those good times that I had. And it's less about the music and more about the good times. You know, because mm-hmm. I, as I tell my students, anybody that says high school are the best years of their life, they didn't go to college. Yep. Those are your best years of your life. <laughs> it really was. I yeah. don't remember anything in high school. I remember everything in college. Right. So, yeah. And so for me, I missed my window of being in the dorm. Hey, we're playing Big Lebowski. Everybody come in here. Okay, sure. And, you know, because uh, yep. we that did the same. Me. We did the same thing with South Park when it first came out. South Park, when they first came out, we all huddled in one dorm room, 20 of us in this tiny little shack in Barnes, which I don't think exists anymore. I think Barnes is gone now. Barnes Dormitory. Oh. Yeah. That's sad. I think that's gone now, but we all just to watch South Park that first season. And when you watch the first season now, you're like, this sucks. By the time, oh, it was the greatest show ever. Yep. We yeah. used to have South Park watching shows. And yeah, my other, my other roommate, Brandon, we would just... Pfft, we would have South Park on all the time. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So th- I can understand why it holds that special place in your heart. It's the experience. Mm-hmm. And it brings you back to those days. But is nostalgia enough on this show? Well, let's do the making of. Let's find out. <laughs> Don't get on the set, get ready to shoot, and then ask for rewrites. Studios do this crap all the time, and they wonder why they end up with a shit movie. Smoke and mirrors, guys. Welcome to the movie factory. Movie? You know, I hate the word movie. I don't make movies, I make films. The dude is mostly inspired by Jeff Dowd, an American film producer and political activist the Coen brothers met while they were trying to distribution for their first film, Blood Simple. Dowd had been a member of the Seattle Seven, liked to drink white Russians, and was known as, quote, the dude. The dude was also partly based on a friend of the Coen brothers, Peter Exline, now a member of the faculty at USC's School of Cinematic Arts, a Vietnam War veteran who reportedly lived in a dump of an apartment and was proud of a little rug that, quote, tied the room together. X-Line knew Barry Sonnenfeld from New York University, and Sonnenfeld introduced X-Line to the Coen brothers while they were trying to raise money for Blood Simple. X-Line became friends with the Coens and in 1989 told them all kinds of stories from his own life, including ones about his actor-writer friend, Louis Abernathy, one of the inspirations for Walter, a fellow Vietnam vet who later became a private investigator and helped him track down and confront a high school kid who stole his car. Is anything in this movie not something they experienced, Steve? Wow. They they lived the movie. That's crazy. Gets better, because as in the film, X-Line's car was impounded by the Los Angeles Police Department, and Abernathy found an eighth grader's homework under the passenger seat. Shut up. <laughs> this is a documentary. It really is. Yeah. X-Line also belonged to an amateur softball league, but the Coens changed it to bowling in the film because, quote, it's a very social sport where you can sit around and drink and smoke while engaging in inane conversation. It the, is. Yeah. I loved it when the, I did it in college. The, <laughs> the Coens met filmmaker John Milius when they were in Los Angeles making Barton Fink and incorporated his love of guns and the military into the character of Walter. John Milius introduced the Coen brothers into one of his best friends, Jim Ganser, who would have been another source of inferences to create Jeff Bridges' character, also known as the Dude. Ganser and his gang, typical Malibu surfers, served as inspiration as well as Milius's film Big Wednesday. These guys took a lot from everybody. Yes, I did. Yeah. I got to blow this up. My eyes aren't what they used to be. All right. Before David Huddleston was cast as Big Jeffrey Lebowski, the Coens considered Robert Duvall, who did not like the script. (laughs) Anthony Hopkins, 
No. Who wasn't interested in playing an American? Gene Hackman, who was taking a break from acting at the time. Norman Mailer, George C. Scott, Jerry Falwell, Gore Vidal, Andy Griffith, William F. Buckley, and Ernest Borgnine. The Coen's top choice was Marlon Brando, but he was unable to star in the film due to health issues, and Charlize Theron was considered for the role of Bunny Lebowski. Was she a big-name actress at that time? Um, 2000? No, this was not 2000. This 1997, 19... I mean. Sorry. Charlize. I was going to look up, too. You can spell faster than me. Yeah, I can. And I can hear you typing away because you're using a computer mic. I make one mistake my entire life. Yep, there it is. Uh, <laughs> let's see here. No, I want actress. Previous. There we go. All the way to 1997. What was she doing? She did the devil's advocate. She was Keanu Reeves' wife. I've never seen devil's advocate. <gasps> You've never seen the devil's advocate? Oh, my God. Steve Al Pacino is Satan? I know, and I've seen scenes from it. It looks so good. You, Mister Devil. I, I, I even know. I don't even know you anymore. I don't even know you anymore. I would have thought that would have been like on your highlights in your brain of the monologues Al Pacino has as Satan. Well, I know, she's, and I'm she's incredibly. I'm gonna get a lot of crap for this. Let me just say this: I think she looks better in that than she does today, and she looks gorgeous today. Um. According to Julianne Moore, the character of Maud was based on artist Carolee Schneeman, Schneeman, who worked naked from a swing and on Yoko Ono. The character of Jesus Quintana, an opponent of the dude's bowling team, was inspired in part by a performance the Coens had seen John Turturro give in 1988 at the Public Theater in a play called Mi Puta Vida, in which he played a pederast-type character. So we thought, let's make Turturro a pederast. It'll be something he can really run with. Joel said in an interview. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the film's overall structure was influenced by the detective fiction of Raymond Chandler. Ethan said, we want something that would generate a certain narrative feeling like a modern Raymond Chandler story, and that's why it had to be set in Los Angeles. We wanted a narrative flow, a story that moves like a Chandler book through different parts of town and different social classes. The use of the stranger's voiceover also came from Chandler, as Joel remarked. Quote, he is a little bit of an audience substitute, in the movie adaptation of Chandler, it's the main character that speaks off screen, but we didn't want to reproduce that, though it obviously has echoes. It's as if someone was commenting on the plot from an all-seeing point of view, and at the same time rediscovering the old earthiness of a Mark Twain. Wow, this... Okay. That's spot on. Yeah. The significance of the bowling culture was, according to Joel, important in reflecting that period at the end of the 50s and the beginning of the 60s that suited the retro side of the movie slightly anachronistic which sent us back to a not so far away era but one that was well and truly gone nevertheless Steve when does this movie take place in the 90s does it take place in the 90s that's what's said in the beginning this set says it takes place in the early 90s okay okay I wasn't quite like halfway through I was like when is this taking place is this the 80s the yeah, 70s that's what the narrator kind of says at the very beginning before you because um, all the music is from the 70s and 80s yeah yeah the narrator says it's from the early 90s and then you see Jeff Bridges character yeah uh, the Coen brothers wrote The Big Lebowski around the same time as Barton Fink when the Coen brothers wanted to make it John Goodman was filming episodes for Roseanne and Jeff Bridges was making the Walter Hill film Wild Bill. The Coens decided to make Fargo in the meantime and won Academy Awards. Uh, 
According to Ethan, the movie was conceived as pivoting around the relationship between the dude and Walter, which which drives me crazy. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Okay, which sprang from the scenes between Barton Fink and Charlie Meadows in Barton Fink. They also came up with the idea of setting the film in contemporary LA because the people who inspired the story lived in the area. When Pete Xline told them about the homework in a baggie incident, the Coens thought that that was very Raymond Chandler and decided to integrate elements of the author's fiction into their script. Joel, Joel Cohen cites Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye as a primary influence of their film in the sense that The Big Lebowski, quote, is just kind of informed by Chandler around the edges. When they started writing the script, the Coens wrote only 40 pages and then let it sit for a while before finishing it. This is a normal writing process for them because they often, quote, encounter a problem at a center certain stage and we pass on to another project. Then we come back to the first script. That way we've already accumulated pieces for several future movies, end quote. Which kind of makes sense because one of my critiques of this movie is that I feel like they sat it down and somebody grabbed the script and wrote in Walter. And when they got there, they're like, oh, who's this Walter guy? Well, we'll just run with it. We got to start shooting. Because Walter seems completely out of place in this whole movie. He is the opposite of the dude. Yeah, granted, I don't know, you know, how they came to be. Right. Nor do I want to know that story for the record. I don't want to know how why little simple things came to be. I don't need to know that stuff. We can just keep it for what it is. So what you're saying is you want a prequel. I don't want any more. I don't need a prequel. Oh, I don't need rubs it off. Need, I don't need to know any of that stuff. It's not required. Don't make it required watching. It's just let it be its own thing. Steve, I feel like you're projecting from a different incident. I don't need to know where Han Solo's gun come from. It's I don't just, either. It's just there. Um, in order to live... Okay, the way... Let's see. Blah, 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 blah. When they started... Ran the script. Okay, we did that. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, that way. Okay, yeah. In order to liven up a scene that they thought was too heavy on exposition, they added an effect art world hanger on, known as Knox Harrington, late in the screenwriting process. <clears throat> in the original script, the dude's car was a Chrysler LeBaron, as Dowd had once owned one, but that car was not big enough to fit John Goodman, so the Coens changed it to a Ford Torino. <laughs> Both are classics. Uh, they are. I always, man, I remember being in high school and I always thought I wanted a LeBaron, like a convertible. I know a buddy who, it was like, had to be like three years, three or four years ago. He bought his son a, Le, a LeBaron, <laughs> a white, a white LeBaron. Oh <laughs> yeah. That's, that's going to get dirty fast. It's awesome. It's one of the, it's one of the cars that when it gets a little dirt on it, looks like a piece of shit, but when it's nice and out of the car wash, it looks awesome. Yeah, it's like something you could take to Miami. Yes, I agree. <laughs> um, <laughs> so let's get into the synopsis of this movie. Here we go. As you can see, it is a ransom note. We have bunny. Written by men who are unable to achieve on a level field of Gather play. $1 million. Cowards. Unmarked, non-consecutive, 20. Weekly. A weight, instructions, Mom. no funny stuff. Bummer. Huh? This is a bummer, man. That's, uh, that's a bummer. Rat will fill you in on the details. 
Lebowski is prepared to make a generous offer to you to act as courier once we get instructions for the money. What do you mean, man? He believes the culprits might be the very people who uh, soiled your rug, and you're in a unique position to confirm or disconfirm that suspicion. He thinks the carpet business did this? Well, dude, we just don't know. Our tumbleweed rolls up a hillside just outside of Los Angeles as a mysterious man known as The Stranger narrates about a fella he wants to tell us about named Jeffrey Lebowski. I can't do a good Sam Elliott. It's because you don't have a mustache covering your mouth. That's the problem. With not much use for his given name, however, Jeffrey goes by the name The Dude. The Stranger describes the dude, as one of the laziest men in L.A., which would place him, quote, high in the running for laziest worldwide. But nevertheless, the man for his time and place. Place and time. Okay, Sam Elliott's got one of those distinctive voices like Morgan Freeman, who I could also listen to him narrate pretty much anything. Yeah, there's not too often that I come across, like, the dark part of scrolling the web and something will be narrated, some documentary of Morgan Freeman, and I just... <laughs> I have to watch it. Exactly. And Sam Elliott falls in that same thing too. So it's yeah. just, I like to listen to his voice. I don't like to watch him say something. I would watch more Westerns if Sam Elliott narrated it. Yeah. 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 I agree. Uh, and then we, we uh, this throughout this entire thing, we get the tumbleweed, the tumbling tumbleweed. Weeds tumbling down. <laughs> yeah, that's the only part of the song I know. <laughs> yeah. So clearly, this is a metaphor and a very, very apt metaphor for the dude who just tumbles his way through this entire movie. I, you know what? It's my thoughts exactly. The only thing that they needed to do was put a tumbleweed at the end of the movie somewhere. Thank you. Or just, or just periodically, you know, even in the background, a tumbleweed. Just play. Yeah, when they're at the when they're at the big boy. Those big windows they got, they could have the tumbleweed mm -hmm. going the street and Walter is flipping out against the waitress. Something like that. Because I this is the first time, Steve, I've watched this movie all the way through. And, and I was disappointed when I didn't see the tumbleweed at the end. I was like, where's the tumbleweed? That's what you were waiting on the whole time is a tumbleweed. Well, I mean, I, no, I, th I, that I, wasn't. I agree with you. I didn't sit there going, this movie makes or breaks on a tumbleweed at the end. I wasn't thinking that. It's just like, okay, well. What happened to the tumbleweed? Would your, would your grade change if it was a tumbleweed? <laughs> we'll never know. Yeah, yeah, okay. We feel more complete. <laughs> You're putting words in my mouth here. Okay. The year is, oh, the year is 1990. Okay. The dude wearing a bathrobe and flip-flops buys a carton of cream at a local Ralph's grocery store with a post-dated check for 69 cents. Uh. On the TV, President George Bush Sr. is addressing the nation, saying, quote, aggression will not stand against Kuwait. Dude returns to his apartment where, upon entering and closing the door, he is promptly grabbed by two men who force him into the bathroom and shove his head into the toilet. They demand money owed to Jackie Treehorn, saying that the dude's wife, Bunny, claimed he was good for it before one of the thugs, Woo, urinates on the dude's rug, saying, ever thus to deadbeats, Lebowski. Bewildered, dude convinces them that they have the wrong person and he's not married and can't possibly possess the amount of money they're asking. Looking around, the first thug realizes they've made a mistake and must have the wrong Lebowski. Regardless, they break one of his bathroom tiles before leaving, 
at least I'm housebroken. Dude calls after them. Um, <clears throat> strong start. You're going to get a lot of this from me. <laughs> I'm good. Hey, strong start. Jeff Bridges is perfect for this role. The dude plays the dude so well. Yes. And we haven't even gotten to the pinnacle of what he can do. But I'll tell you, the man could take a swirly. Good. He definitely <laughs> I felt, could. I just felt bad for the guy because, I mean, in the beginning, he's writing a check for 69 cents. Yes. <laughs> it's like, okay, this guy is just he, he, obviously a penny pincher, you know. And then he gets slammed into the toilet and his creamer goes everywhere. I'm like, oh, dude. <laughs> oh, well, it's that when he gets home, he has it all over his mustache like he was. No, when he's writing the check, he drank the creamer in the store. Hey, like, you got to test it. That's that's it. fucking gross. It's half and half. It's 90. It's it just tested. It's not like he's drinking it. Like he drinks it in the drink. Uh, you know, it's just testing it to make sure it's the right one. It's not spoiled. So, I mean, heck, he takes one from the back and puts the front one nice and neat back in there. <laughs> okay, so the swirly. Maybe this is Ticky Tack. If it is, please call me out. But nothing drives me crazier in movies than when someone's getting swirlied or waterboarded and they ask him a question and before they can answer, they just start to pour shit on them. And it's like, do you, and then they stop and they go ask the question again. And you're not giving him the opportunity to answer the question. They're idiots. They're idiots. They don't know what the hell they're doing. <laughs> That's what I guess they're trying to establish. I was kind of thinking the same thing. Okay. And then, you know, then he kind of goes, uh, I don't know. Let me, let me check. I think it's down there one more time. <laughs> it's uh, just like, <laughs> I didn't realize that was Jacob from lost. I didn't realize that was Jacob from Lost till probably one of the last times that I saw it. Yeah. I was like, oh, I know him. He's he's Satan in Supernatural. You're Lebowski, Lebowski. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, you're one, another one of your favorite lines. Obviously, you're not a golfer. I say this all the time at school. Yeah. When these kids go, coach, what are we playing? And they're like, okay, we're, we're doing floor hockey. He goes, well, what is this? Obviously, it's like looking at a puck. I'm like, obviously, you're not a golfer. It's like, we're doing golf? I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> I love how you're expecting kids to understand a cult movie reference. <laughs> it's just, it just comes natural to me. That's what this movie's done. And Are you saying like, that you have a little dude inside of you? Well, I mean, <laughs> I don't want to call him a little dude, but... Is, um, is there a big dude inside you? He's not a big dude. You know, he he, he is what he is. <laughs> and, I mean, this is just the start of the one-liners throughout this whole movie. And I'm sorry, you're going to get giggles from me throughout this entire time. And I apologize to anybody out there who's like, oh, my God, it's not that funny. Stop. I, but, I mean, I, I encourage story, I encourage you. The story just kicks off right away as the dude is thrown into a scenario he has nothing to do with. Just like Donnie. 
just wanders we'll, into We'll get into Donnie later. Oh, how can you not like Donnie? Donnie's a lovable guy. Dude meets up with his bowling team at the local alley and talks to them about his violent encounter. Walter Subcheck. Subcheck. Thank you. Walter reacts with anger and vengeance on his mind, often speaking of his time served in Vietnam to relate to the issue. Slow-witted Theodore Donald Donnie Carabastus, Donnie, often entering conversations halfway through, pipes in, but is promptly told by Walter, you're out of your element, Donnie. Walter then tells dude about a millionaire who shares dude's name and must be the one the thugs were after. This is a really nice trio. I like this trio. Is there a movie that you don't like Steve Buscemi or John Goodman in at this point? No, Steve Buscemi is, I've, I, I'm probably a huge Steve Buscemi fan. It's yeah. just like, no matter what he's in, um, the only other movie right now off the top of my head I can think about him in was, this is gonna be really weird, is Armageddon, where he plays just <laughs> kind of, a, I knew I was gonna get that from like out of all the movies. Yep, he's rock out. <laughs> Yeah, he says, sorry, just want to feel the power between my legs. Yeah. <laughs> you know? he, he gets he's space just, madness. He's just, he has a wide, his range is insane. Um, and that's why I like him. I recently watched Kingpin in December. Uh, and although this movie romanticizes bowling very well, Kingpin does it better. <laughs> Never seen Kingpin. <laughs> I don't even have a sound ready for this. Uh, I can I can hear Troy yelling at me from his house right now. That you haven't seen Kingpin? That I haven't seen Kingpin. Just like how he yelled at me when I never watched Sandlot. For the record, I've seen Sandlot. Okay. Seen it. I've seen I saw it like maybe a year or so ago for the first time. Um Asian American, please. Anger turns to tolerance so fast with this guy. This guy clearly has a chemical imbalance. Well, first, they're all saying Chinaman. It's like, dude, Asian-American is the preferred term. Well, he's yelling. Then he goes, and by the way, and I'm like, oh, God, you are so California. It hurts. Oh, God. his He has extreme highs. I don't know if I want to call him extreme lows. You can but, call him that. His little heartfelt speech at the end felt like it was a completely different character. <laughs> Yes and no. Yes yeah, and no. no. It's because a yes. There it is. Yes. <laughs> it's yes and no because, yeah, well, we'll get into it. But, okay, not to go into this, but the quote-unquote China man that they talk about is from Korea. Well, Vietnam, China man, it, Korea. Vietnam, that's the Vietnamese. <laughs> I, I know, I know, but that was just a time back then where they were all mixed into one. It's I'm not saying it was right. I'm not saying it was right. And you know what? I have a I have a story that goes with this, but I don't know if I really want to say it. Yeah, but save my editing for today, okay? <laughs> it was okay. Okay, dude agrees to meet with. Oh, I'm sorry, you got more to say there. Oh, well, I mean, I kind of already touched. I just said, you know, Walter's brain is still half in Vietnam. Yeah. You know, and it just comes in and out whenever it wants to. And, you know, like I said, poor Donnie. He's just like, he's probably the best bowler on the team. Yeah. Every time they go to him in the first few scenes, he's always like, hey, you got another strike. Yeah. And I mean, you just, 
he's always blowing strikes. And if he's not, he's you know, he misses one. Yeah. And you know, he's probably so wrapped up in bowling, and then he comes back to these conversations and he just gets crapped on. You know, like poor Donnie. That's I love, I love the guy, and I barely met him. Do we ever see the dude or Walter throw a bowling ball? Yes. Uh, uh mm, the dude, no. But I do see you do see Walter line up on the lane with the ball in his hand, and then he starts to throw, and then it's off screen. Okay. Uh, dude agrees to meet with the big Lebowski, hoping to get compensation for his rug since it really tied the room together, and figures that his wife Bunny shouldn't be owing money around town. Arriving at Lebowski's mansion, dude is assisted by Brandt, who shows him numerous awards and pictures illustrating Lebowski's endeavors in philanthropy before dude meets the man himself. The elder and wheelchair-bound Lebowski brings Dude into a study where he quickly gets to the point and professes that he can't take responsibility for every spoiled rug in the city and accuses Dude of seeking a handout, clearly resentful of his hippie-like demeanor. Dude leaves the room and tells Brant that Lebowski offered any rug in the house to him. He quickly picks one out, and as it's being loaded into Dude's car, he speaks to a young blonde woman poolside who's painting her toenails green. She asks Dude to blow on her toes, assuring him that Uli, the man in the pool, won't mind because he's a nihilist. Brandt appears and introduces her as Bunny Lebowski, Mr. Lebowski's much younger trophy wife, before she offers Dude suck his dick for $1,000. Brandt nervously laughs and escorts Dude out to find a cash machine. I got $1,000. <laughs> okay I made another I need a cash machine <laughs> another amazing actor Philip Seymour Hoffman the late Philip Seymour Hoffman yeah again another guy that has amazing range and everything yeah so but is he just walking people through the Lebowski Hall of Fame here he is Jeff Lebowski's is or the big Lebowski's personal assistant but I feel like he's done this several times. Like he does a tour group through the Lebowski's awards and shit. That's to keep up with his persona. There is a very, very funny moment I laughed at in this. At the scene? In this scene. Okay. It's when he keeps touching the trophy. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not laughing at Jeff. I'm laughing at how Philip Seymour Hoffman is acting this out. Because he get. He does every facial expression, telling him three or four times, don't do it. And as the dude walks away, he leans over, does it one more time. And you look at Brant, you feel like his head's going to explode. <laughs> He's trying to keep his composure. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, sure. that's what it's like to have kids. <laughs> <laughs> don't touch. Uh, okay. Uh, I, I have a, uh, a, a rough take here, Steve. The dude's stick is starting to annoy me. We're like 20 minutes in. I know. But I hate adults that act like they're still stoned in high school. They're just a waste of society. And I completely agree with Mr. Lebowski in this whole thing. When he dresses the guy down, basically, in his office. I was like, he is the problem. The dude, although this carefree life, we all look at it, he's doing nothing. He contributes nothing to society. He yep. sucks at society's teat as he gets through it. And what I love is that when he dresses him down right there and there, Jeff Bridges straightens up a little bit. Like, oh, mm -hmm. an adult is talking to me. This is a guy with Peter Pan syndrome. Like, just wants to be in high school forever. He acts like a middle schooler, you know? Because then he throws his, his sunglasses down like, I don't care, whatever. And I'm like, oh, I just want to slap the shit out of you. I mean... <laughs> 
you're convincing me to ch- to change my grade to a higher is, to a higher one possibly because this is exactly what is supposed to be portrayed on film man oh i'm not saying that he doesn't do a bad i think he does a great job in this role i just hate his character it's okay to hate i but here's the thing i think that's what you i think that's what you're supposed to do at the same time i can love him and to hate him i can promise you this my grade is not based on that at all oh okay yeah that's fine it's just i you know if i saw this guy walking on the street i'd be like "Eh." if i hit him how many points do i get yeah no, I agree with you. Um, let's see. Yeah, we did the thing about Korea. It's just blatant yeah. wordplay at this point. Yeah. Anything the else in this China? China? You know, no, the, ch- the China man. <laughs> um, it's you know, <laughs> you know, going back to the scene where yeah, he slams his fist down and it's just like you know, he puts his sunglasses on, and goes, "Fuck it, man." You know, he just doesn't have a care. You know that that you know stick it to the man mentality he kind of has at the end because he tells brant you know says eh, he said i could take any rug in the house you know and it's just a, it, it's a stick it to the man move it's it's an over the hill man still living in the free world man you know it's just it's it's it, what it, our middle schoolers do with the constant wanting the last word yes it is except it is. they and, always lose in the end just like he's about to they do, they do, because he gets that rug taken. And this is the second time I've heard the word Chinaman in this movie. Yes. And it's not going to translate well by today's standard. To be fair, the two people who use the term, one of them is the dude. Yeah. You know? Oh. Uh, yeah, the dude's it, because it's Walter who corrects him. That it's three guys who say it. Go ahead. Okay, the dude... We have Huddleston, who's clearly from a different era. He's another vet. Okay, yeah. And then who's the so third guy? Walter. Walter does say that. Yeah, yeah. He corrects him and he uses it himself. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the three guys. But the two guys are vets. Yeah. Probably from the same war, so. I don't think Walter and Huddleston are from the same war. I think Huddleston's supposed to be like World War II. Or, e- or even I mean, or even Korea, and then Walter I would is say Korea, Vietnam. Yeah, I would say Korea. Yeah. Um, during a league game at the alley, dude scolds Walter for bringing his ex-wife's small dog in a kennel with him while she is in Hawaii with her new boyfriend. As they debate, a member of the opposite team, Smokey, bowls an eight and tells the dude to mark it. But Walter objects, stating Smokey's foot was over the line. When Smokey argues, Walter pulls out a gun and aims it at Smokey's face, forcing him to comply and void the score as a zero. As Walter sits down again, he explains, It's a league game, Smokey. There are rules. Dude scolds Walter as they leave, trying to act casual as police units arrive and run past them into the alley. Uh, He pulled a gun. How is the dude aligned with someone this high strung? Oh, I'm sure he's always packing. He's a vet. He's a Vietnam vet. How is the dude (laughs) friends with someone this high strung? I mean, I don't think he has to worry about it getting pulled on the dude. This is buddies. The dude had a problem with society's rules when Huddleston was going after him, but he doesn't have a problem with Walter's rules. What does he forgive about Walter? 
Got a little PTSD. The dude? No, Walter. Got a feel for the guy. He went through a lot. He's just trying to come back to this world that he protected and is totally appalled on what he has to protect at times. I think he says that in a later film at the uh, big boy scene. Um, but yeah, it's just they were, they had to they had to have been they, these guys probably went to high school together. You want a prequel? No. I don't need a prequel. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Probabilities aren't explained. I need something to explain why these two guys even know each other. They went to high school. There you go. Did they say that? I said it. No, okay. <laughs> Tell me more about the scene, Steve. So it's like, it's just another line that I remember watching this for like one of the one or two or third times watching it. And this was like the, one of the first scenes that I just was like dying, crying, laughing. And it's just me. I don't know. But I just like, this says, I can't believe you brought the dog bowling. He's like, I'm not taking the dog bowling. I didn't rent its shoes. It's not taking your fucking turn. I didn't buy it a beer. <laughs> I just, I just remember this for the first time, and I, I, I just died laughing. And I, even when I watched it the other night, I was just like, uh, "It's still funny." It's just the subtleness and the sarcasm in there. I can relate that to, and that's just, it's, it, it's constant. And then all of a sudden, he's got that tone, and he goes over the line. It's just the extreme rational irrationals, and how fast he goes in an instant it's just walter is my favorite character i love how much you love this movie <laughs> this isn't nom we have rules I, <laughs> I use that line too of course you do and then i'm, I'm the dude so that's what you call me you know uh that or uh his dudeness or uh duder or uh you know el duderino if you're not into the whole brevity or thing anything yeah i get it yeah exactly which i still don't know what that like brevity thing i don't know what that means to though. make that's things, okay to make things brief and short but that doesn't el duderino is the long form of the dude I just thought he was just trying to take something and turn it Spanish by saying L and then putting an O at the end of something. Ah, that would be El Dudo. Oh. <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> um, and then, you know, it's just, and then, you know, when, when the whole scene ends and he finally marks it zero, Walter calms down, starts takes the live round that's, you know, in the barrel, pops that out, pulls out the magazine, and just goes, it's a league game. Okay, but... This is so juvenile. It is. He's a little when, kid. When the, okay, so this next scene, though, when, or, when, when the cops show up, like... They run right in behind him. It's great. <laughs> they left at the right time. But they come back. They come back to the bowling alley. Don't you think the owner be like, guys, he's here. Get the cops here now. No, I mean, they're part of the league. Where else are they going to go? 
afterwards relaxing in his apartment and enjoying a white Russian drink, his favorite cocktail, dude listens to his phone messages. Smokey calling to talk about the gun incident. I see you swigging it over there. Brandt asking dude to call him and the bowling league administrator wishing to speak about Walter's belligerence and gun brandishing on the lines. No cops called. Dude's doorbell rings and his landlord, Marty, this weirdo, reminds dude to pay his rent and informs him that he's performing a dance at a local theater and would like dude to attend to give him notes. The dude obliges as Brant rings again, telling dude that Lebowski needs to see him and it's not about the rug. Now, this is a hallmark of Coen Brother movies. There are always, every character is a quirky ass character. Every character is. Hey, if that's a Coen Brothers thing, I probably have yet to figure that out because I've only seen one other one. Yes. But I mean, in Burn After Reading, there's a lot of quirky characters. Yes. And I mean, white Russians, they are delicious. I mean, I might be making myself another one. I I never had one, never even knew what they were until I saw this movie. And then it wasn't long until after, it wasn't a while till after I joined a bowling league. Yeah. And it's like, having one at a bowling alley it just seems a lot cooler man there was a phase when i enjoyed white russians uh and then i realized i can't drink white russians it's just it, i get too gassy and well i mean it's 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 one thing to be buzzed it's not to be buzzed and gassy like there's nothing attractive about to happen <laughs> i mean to have a white russian you can have maybe one or two it's not like it's not like a beer you can just have like eight white russians you know I mean, then they Why got not? white Russians, you got your dark, <laughs> you got your dark Russians. And um, then... Tell me about the landlord. Do you like the landlord? He's great. He's great. <laughs> I love the landlord. Is there anybody I... that's not great in this, Steve? <laughs> yeah, I do have a bottom three. I've actually filled that out quicker than my top three. Shut the front door. No, God, it opens from the outside, man. <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> I feel like the landlord's only friend is the dude. And I feel like he's kind of proud of that. Not the dude, but the landlord. And I love his little fist jab at the end. He's just trying to be, just trying to be cool. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's wearing short shorts. Come on, man. It's the 90s. It, the early 90s. Time right? out. Time out. Before we start to do this, the early 90s, I was alive in the early 90s. I can promise you dudes weren't wearing short jean shorts like that. That was the year, the nineties was the year. No, 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 no. At the Lebowski mansion, Brant solemnly leads dude into the study where he finds Lebowski crying beside the lit fireplace. He shows dude a crude note describing bunnies kidnapping and the demand for $1 million. This is a bummer, man. The dude offers as he smokes a joint. Brant explains what they want, that they want the dude to act as a courier to deliver the payment when they receive word of a location for the drop-off and tells dude that he might even recognize the kidnappers as the same people who soiled his rug. And the dude accepts his quest just like Luke Skywalker. I, uh, when, no, because... It's a bummer. You got to remember, this is around the time when I've usually tapped out of the movie. It's a very intense scene with the with the music in the background making things making thing, things seem bigger than what they actually are yes but so when i wrote the like luke skywalker i thought okay i'm gonna get like an adventure 
a Luke Skywalker like a, or a, or any a Harry Potter type adventure here with the dude. You know, not with magic and the force and all that shit, but I mean, like, it's going to be something where it's going to make sense all the way through. But then I noticed that every single scene is so different from the last. I kind of feel like I'm being jerked around. It's, it's an adventure. He goes through, he goes through everything, goes through everything. It's crazy. And he thinks the carpet pisser's done it? Because he doesn't know who the guys are. He just calls them the carpet pissers. That I mean, funny. yeah. Back at the bowling alley, a Hispanic man wearing a hairnet and purple jumpsuit with Jesus embroidered in the uh, on the front bowls a perfect strike. A few lanes down, dude, Donnie, and Walter watch him with slight resentment. Dude compliments on Jesus' skill, but Walter criticizes him for being a pederast, having served six months for exposing himself to an eight-year-old before asking dude about the Lebowski arrangement. Dude explains that he will receive $20,000 as courier and shows Walter the beeper Brant gave him. He doesn't worry about the handoff and figures that Bunny kidnapped herself for some extra money. Walter seems to take Bunny's offense personally as Jesus walks over, telling him, telling them to watch out for his team. And if they flash a piece at the finals, I'll go read, you read it. (laughs) I know though. (laughs) I take it away from you. Stick it up your ass and pull the trigger till it goes click. Uh, is this your favorite side character, Steve, the Jesus? Uh, he probably has to be. It's just like everything from when the scene starts and the music kicks in before the scene transitions, like just ever so slightly. And then you kind of see the hand kind of go over the fan of the bowling pin. This is okay. Anybody who does that takes bowling really seriously. It's the Spanish yeah. version of Hotel California. Yeah, and you know what? I didn't even realize... I. I've seen this movie umpteen times. And every time when you put his fists in the air and it, you can hear Hotel California, it's like, oh, that's right. It is Hotel California. And it, I even try to figure it out beforehand and I never can. Like, I have no idea what music song this is. But it's like everything that John Tutoro does from taking the ball, giving his little shimmy, and then he licks the ball. <laughs> and then he does this little dance and he points to his, to his partner. And then... All the way down to when, you know, the dude and Walter and sometimes Donnie are having their conversation and then it pans over to him and he's, they're cleaning their balls. <laughs> it's just, it's just so great. And then he just gives out this thought, hey, I see you guys rolled your ways into the seventies. <laughs> Liam and me, we're going to fuck you up. Yeah. Well, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. You do any of that flashy stuff, you'll pull your piece out on the lane. I take it away from you and stick it up your ass and make the trigger go click. Jesus. You said it, man. Nobody fuck with the Jesus. (laughs) It's so great. Everything John Tutoro says is gold. I love it. And it just flows. It, it it's tough to describe because it's so quirky and it's bizarre almost. You have no idea where this is going to go. And the audience is just going on a ride with the dude. And then it's just, you know, Walter's expression just kind of goes, pat her ass, dude. <laughs> Thoughts? Okay. What do you think of Jesus? Okay. I love the character of the Jesus. What is the point of the Jesus in this movie? 
it's the super mini side plot of the bowling. It keeps the bowling in the movie. It's not a bowling movie. And that was always the huge debate. What kind of a movie is this? Is this a comedy? Is it a crime? Is it a sports movie, a bowling movie? I mean, I don't think it's a bowling movie. I think it's a crime movie and there's the bowling just happens to be there. And this just keeps that bowling aspect story in the movie. And I look at it as I love the quirky character of the Jesus. But did you just do a quirky character to have a quirky character show up? Because that's what I think happened was I, and look, I love Cohen. Well, I like Cohen brother movies. Some of them are hit or miss with me, but the ones that are missing, they're the ones where they introduce characters and then they just kind of drop them off. And you're like, well, what was the point? You know, you put something memorable like that in there and I go, I'll see it later. And it doesn't turn into anything. But you do see it later. He shows up at the end, you know. Does he? John Tutoro's character. Yeah, the Jesus. Yeah. I mean, I got that scene down pat too. I I know you do. I know. know, (laughs) I'm talking to like the Lebowski savant over here. I got it. Oh, it's just, but I I think I kind of say it like kind of later on in my final analysis. It's like everybody calls this a cult movie. Yeah. You know, I think cult movies are character movies you're not really you don't really like the story you love the characters in there you can relate to maybe not relate to them but you just you love all the characters yeah you know so and i think the jesus is just another one that's i mean he surprisingly got a spinoff i mean you could almost say star wars has a cult following han solo got a spinoff didn't need a didn't need a spinoff, but he was a character favorite. Everybody saw Star Wars. Nobody saw this. It was forty six million dollars in the theater, total. It's a damn travesty. <laughs> you can't compare Star Wars to this. <laughs> I just did. Okay. They have unique characters. <laughs> this whole movie's like the cantina scene. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you're furthering my point. At his apartment, dude lies happily on his new rug, listening to a taped bowling game through headphones. He opens his eyes and sees a red-haired woman and two men standing over him before he's punched in the face and knocked out by them. He dreams that he is flying over L.A., chasing a woman who is riding his rug ahead of him. A bowling ball suddenly appears in his hand and pulls him to the ground where he stands, miniaturized, facing a gigantic bowling ball as it rolls towards him. He tenses and winds up in one of the finger holes of the ball. From his perspective, we see the ball roll down the lane away from its female bowler toward the pins. As the pins scatter, the dude wakes up to the sound of his beeper going off and finds that his rug has been taken from underneath him. This is trippy. Oh, it's very trippy. Uh, I, mean, I I do like the inside the bowling ball shot. It is, and I don't. I, I feel like I, if if my TV screen was bigger, I probably would get dizzy. Oh, I was getting a little <laughs> bit queasy actually, because that is a it's a long shot. That they yeah, do. It, it is cool though. I'll give you that. Um, I go ahead, because I, I don't just, need to. I don't need to say what I'm about to say. You can say it. I just think it's funny that he's like what it zooms in and you can tell he's listening to a taped bowling game. Is that his version of studying? 
it's like, why are you listening to just pins being knocked out? It's not like you can see anything. Well, okay. You know, so, I can see form. Here's the thing. This movie really leans into the bowling as the background for the entire situation. Yes. It really leans into that. So in that respect, I would say that this is also a bowling movie. Um, that being said, because here's the thing, if they're doing league play, the only reason they keep going back to the bowling alley is because they're still in the league play. Yes. So you but need I- that in order for the movie to work. Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I, so I noticed that you put here that this is one of two scenes that just seem like fillers. Yeah, it's just, I don't know what the point of this scene was. I mean. It was to make it, you laugh. I mean, it's a funny scene. Well, I wasn't laughing. It was just like. Well, me either, I mean, but... It was a dream sequence. Yeah. And he was high already. So I don't know what it was trying to establish. Okay. So that's the question I have for the Lebowski savant. Um, Is he high this whole movie or like, I feel like they play around with his perception, this entire thing. I mean, there's, this is one of three, I think sequences where they do this. Yeah. The last one being the, 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 the most extravagant one where he's walking down the steps in the porno. Yes. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, and I'm, I'm sitting there watching going, okay, is he high the whole time? He's always smoking weed. I think if he's not smoking, he's either drinking or, he, or in, in, in that aspect, he was drugged. So he's consistently under the influence. Under the, yes. I think he's consistently under the influence. Okay. Uh, answering the page, dude returns to Lebowski's mansion where Brant explains that the kidnappers want the exchange to happen that very night. He gives dude a portable phone and a briefcase with the money, instructing him to take it up the highway and wait for the kidnappers to call. Once the exchange is complete, dude is to call Brant immediately before he leaves. Brant repeats to dude that, quote, her life is in your hands. And now this is me asking the question because I've never made it this far into the movie. Why was the dude assigned this task? You could have picked anybody else and it would have been more competent well i mean i didn't know where the movie was going this might and okay in your defense i think he kind of this is explained a little bit later in the movie just because he's a deadbeat and if something were to happen nobody would care well that's exactly it you find out later on that he didn't want bunny to be found yeah, well, not not yeah that, and that's why he used the dude to do all of this because one he wasn't going to get it, and he just wanted to make the whole thing go away and play it off that way. So he used him, who just happened to fall into the big Lebowski's lap as this loser stoner person. That if something were to happen to him, nobody would care, and it, then he'd get away with it. And I think I know why I tap out around this point because I don't, at this point, I don't understand why the dude was chosen for this at all. Mm. And I go up, oh, I'm done with this. This doesn't make any fucking sense. And I turn off the VCR tape. Do you still think that way now? Well, now that I know the ending, the okay. ending justifies me asking this question. Cause it's, it's telling the audience, you, you need to be asking this question also. Cause this leads you on the path to figuring it out. So is this the first time that you've watched it all the way through? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. But then I asked the question at the very end of, 
if you didn't want her to be found, why did you pick somebody to go looking? I got to say that back in my head. <laughs> I don't want you, to think you've of You've never asked that think. question, have you? I've never asked. Don't ask that question. <laughs> Seriously. Because then you wouldn't have a movie. I don't know. I still can't even think. I don't think there's enough time on this podcast for me to really think. So let's just go. Okay. Despite Brant's instructions to go alone, dude picks up Walter from a store. Walter gets in the driver's seat and immediately proposes a plan for a switch, holding his own briefcase full of dirty underwear so that he and dude can keep the million themselves. Walter also plans to capture one of the kidnappers and beat Bunny's location out of him. Dude is adamantly against the crazy plan, but when the kidnappers call, dude accidentally lets slip that he's not alone. The kidnappers hang up, and dude panics that Bunny is as good as dead, though Walter reminds him of his own suspicions that Bunny kidnapped herself. The kidnappers call again and give a location, granted there is no funny stuff. Walter doesn't make sense being a part of dude's life. I've already gone over this. I don't need to go over it anymore. Go ahead. Tell me more, he's ready, he's ready for warfare. He's there to help his friend out. He brought an Uzi. Clearly, it was a shitty rapping job. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's probably something that he just brought along with him from Nam that he still happened to have. It's just, but he comes up with another great line. Dude, you're being very undude. Nothing is fucked. They are fucking amateurs. <laughs> and he's a professional. <laughs> well, he's, he's a military guy. He knows exactly. It's like he's... He's it's a military like he's guy gone. who wrapped an Uzi in the worst way possible. Well, I mean, when you're in Nam, you got to deal with the elements, but he's, he, at Walter. Donnie, you're like, out of your element. He is out of his element. <laughs> <laughs> Walter acts like, but I don't think he's ever been in any of these situations. He just thinks he knows what's going to happen. And he thinks he knows what's in the best interest of the dude. Cause that's what he cares about. He's his friend. He wants the dude, and probably him too, to have the million dollars, to get money. That all goes back to the very beginning when he's very animated about the rug. He's like, dude, they pissed on your fucking rug. You should not. This aggression will not stand. It should not stand. You should be angry. You should go after him. You should get him to take. That's all he is. All he's there. He's trying to do is help his buddy out. Okay. Uh, at the designated location, the kidnappers call and instruct the dude to throw the suitcase out the car window onto a bridge. As they approach the bridge, dude throw, tries to throw the real suitcase, but at the last second, Walter tosses the ringer and forces dude to take the wheel as he arms himself with an Uzi and bails out of the moving car. Despite his seemingly flawless and heroic plan, Walter loses grip of the Uzi and it fires wildly, hitting dude's tail lights and tires, causing him to panic and crash into a telephone pole. Three men on motorcycles appear just beyond the bridge, and as dude scrambles out of the car with the briefcase, pick up the ringer and ride off, Walter calmly gets up and says, fuck it, dude, let's go bowling. Um, Walter starting the scene like he's back in the 60s again. It's a bad plan, dude. Get out of the car. And, and Walter needs help. Walter doesn't need doesn't need the dude. He needs help. Walter is struggling with some inner demons, and you know, trying to keep what is the real world and what is not warfare. the real world. <laughs> yeah, what is warfare, which are two completely different worlds. I mean, the plan seems good. It just goes terribly wrong. It's not good. <laughs> It's not yeah. good. Yes, it is. You want to keep the money, so you throw out a fake ringer 
Do you? Then you just then you just leave. But okay, since we're playing checkers and not chess, let me introduce you to chess here. Okay. Yes, you made the move, but they're gonna come back when they open the bag and find it's nothing but undies. And when they know that it's Lebowski that did it, he's dead. That's not a good plan. Who's, who's gonna come back? The people who took the money. The nihilists? Yes. That have nothing to do with Jackie Treehorn and all that other stuff? They, but here's the thing, they, they, they know, don't know that. They know There's the bag so is supposed many... to be full of money. It's full of John Goodman's dirty fucking underwear. The whites. <laughs> <laughs> so gross. You don't think they're going to be, you think they'll be like, oh, I guess I just got underwear. No, they're going to go back, find Lebowski and kill him. Where are they going to find him at? They called him. They clearly know where he lives. Yeah. And how often does, does, does he answer the phone? They know it's his number. They know where he lives. It's not a they're cell phone. Go to, they're going to go to the big Lebowski. They're not going to go to him. They called him on his home phone. Back then, your phones were all tied to your address. Did the, didn't the Nihilists call that? Was it the... Did they call his home phone? I can't Yes. Remember. I don't want to take your word for it. <laughs> But I have to because I can't remember. At the alley, the portable phone rings incessantly, no doubt Brant calling to check on the mission. Dude is miserable, angry at Walter, and certain that Bunny will be killed, though Walter is calm and convinced that Bunny kidnapped herself. He tells Dude not to worry and that Bunny will eventually get bored and return home on her own, but becomes dismayed to see that the bowling schedule has him playing on Saturday, something he is forbidden to do since he is Shomer Shabbos, and must honor the Jewish day of rest. The Dude wonders why Walter didn't go back to being Catholic since he only converted for his ex-wife, Don... Ex-wife. Now this comes on later, Donnie interjects mid-conversation and is, again, told to shut the fuck up, Donnie, by Walter. As they leave, Dude discovers his car missing along with the briefcase. Walter suggests it was towed because they parked in a handicapped spot, but Dude is certain that it was stolen. He starts walking home with his phone ringing. This is like the only time where, you know, Walter's demeanor is he knew he fucked up. He's just trying to forget about it. It's almost like it's the glass is half full. Keep going. I've got nothing to add to the scene. Go ahead. You just did. What did you have to say about I already, it? I already talked about that. The fact that I think Walter was just jammed in here for something else. But Oh. Yeah. I like how Donnie, when he speaks to Walter, Walter always just has to shut the fuck up, Donnie. Oh, yeah. But when Donnie all of a sudden, all of a sudden mentions league play, he's like, Donnie, shut the... When do we play? <laughs> he actually gives an interest to what Donnie has to say. Yeah. Like, finally, Donnie did something. You know, he actually has a little bit of a role in here. And it's just to talk about league play, I guess, which I don't know if it's, it's just it's just scheduling. It just explains that he's Shomer Shabbos. But it's the only time so far that Walter likes Donnie. It, so far. Well, he Donnie provides him with something that he needs. Yes. Yeah, and if he doesn't need it, then he's an asshole to the people. Yeah, and the dude, this whole time, while they're talking like Shomer Shabbos and all this stuff, and he's talking to Donnie and the dude at the same time, but Walter's like annoyed with the dude, but the dude is the only realist here. He actually cares about other people. He's not as much of a deadbeat as we thought. I mean, he's still lazy, don't get me wrong, but he actually cares about other people. He's not 
I give I give him a little respect in this scene. No, no. Here's it. No, no. Yes. Yeah, he cares about Buddy. It... Somebody he has only met once, and you're like, they're gonna kill that poor woman, man. You sound just like him. I saw. I, I heard it myself too. <laughs> I'm best friends with the dude. <laughs> and another sm- very, very small thing that Walter does is when the dude is angrily leaving. Ah, oh, fuck it, man. He just kind of, Walter goes, dude, dude, dude. And then he just mouths something like, he's having a bad day. <laughs> it's just so, it was funny. It's like, it's one of my favorite scenes. And it's just, it, I know it's so little, but it's just like, it's like when you watch a movie and you find one thing funny and then you start laughing hilariously. It's like every little thing just compounds itself to where even the smallest, dumbest things are absolutely hilarious. And that's what this movie does for me. That's what, you know, that's why I was like, is this a comedy or is this a crime? And I, it rightfully belongs in a crime, but it, it, this was very hard to grade. Um, but it's just, that's what this movie does. It compounds all of these things that I think are funny to you know, where the dumbest little things are absolutely tear watering hilarious for me. I'm going to say something that's going to blow your mind. Blow um, me. No. Blow. <laughs> it's not going to blow. I can't blow that far. I think that if you had said, I'm nominating this movie for the Adventure Pantheon, I may have been more forgiving on this one. Uh, You probably would have, but I know that adventure list and it ain't making anything. But I'm just saying that this is more of a journey than anything else. It's the tumbling tumbleweed and all the different scenarios that the tumbleweed is going to see. It is a journey. Yeah. The wheel in the sky keeps on turning. It's an epic fantasy. We've consider all the LSD trips. Oh. <laughs> Dude resolves to call the police and issue a statement for his stolen car. Two police officers arrive at his apartment to take notes and Dude addresses the separate issue of his missing rug just before his home phone rings. The answering machine records a woman introducing herself as Maud Lebowski and saying that she is the one who took his rug and has sent a car to pick dude up at his apartment. The younger of the two cops is pleased that the missing rug issue is resolved. The dude is not in. The dude was in. We'll leave a message. It takes a minute. Yeah, (laughs) right. (laughs) Tell me you had an answering machine at one point that did this. Uh... The Steve is not in. No, I don't think I said the Steve. If, if I if I probably just copied and said the dude. Back when, you know, leaving a proper voicemail was a thing. Yes. You know, I like how the dude talks about his business papers. <laughs> and then when he asks about his job status, I'm unemployed. Right. <laughs> yeah. But doesn't he go through, like, all the jobs he's had later on? Uh, Yeah, when he's talking with Maude. Yes. And he talks about he was he was a roadie for Metallica. Yeah, bunch of assholes. Then I was un, then I was unemployed. Then I did this. Then I was unemployed. I dabbled a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you don't have to call which, Metallica a bunch of assholes. They're all they're all they could be all lies, but 
Except for the roadie thing. I do believe that. Okay. But now the dude has lost another prized possession of his. His car. Yes. The rug and his car. The the, the dude has... It's, it's being very undued, these people. Well, to be fair, he didn't lose his rug. It was pissed on. He could have gotten it cleaned. He could have gotten this clean. The guy was writing checks for milk. And he was owed it because there was a mistake. He wasn't owed shit by the guy he went to. Every time somebody defecates on a rug, that guy's got to pay for it. (laughs) Mr. Lebowski didn't shit on the rug or pee on the rug. But his problem did. That's not the same thing. Know what? If they would have got, if he didn't have the problem, it would have never happened. Okay, let, let's get weirder. The dude is brought to a huge loft studio filled with canvases and minimal illumination. As he walks in, he is startled by the sudden appearance of Maud swinging in naked on a zip line, screaming and flailing paintbrushes over a large canvas to create an abstract image. She descends to the ground and is robed before addressing the dude. She explains that she is a professional artist whose work is commended as strongly vaginal, often to a point of making some men uncomfortable. She tells dude that the rug took he took for was a gift from her to her late mother and fa- her father, Big Lebowski, had no right giving it away. Maud's flamboyant assistant, Knox Harrington, watches as Dude fixes himself a white Russian, and Maud puts a tape in her VCR. She asks Dude if he enjoys sex as the video rolls, a smut film starring Bunny Lebowski and Uli, the German nihilist, credited as Carl Hungus. Maud surmises that Bunny kidnapped herself, elaborating on the already obvious notion that she gets around and even bangs the producer of the film, Jackie Treehorn. As one of two trustees of Little Lebowski's Urban Achievers, one of Lebowski's charity programs, Maud noticed a withdrawal of $1 million from its funds and was told it was for the ransom. Though she is more or less estranged from her father, she doesn't want to involve the police in his embezzlement and offers the dude 10% of the $1 million if he retrieves the money from the kidnappers. With the finder's fee, she tells him he can buy himself a new rug. She then apologizes for the crack on the jaw and gives the dude a number for a doctor who will examine him free of charge. What the hell am I watching steve this is Maud is a bizarre character and every time it kind of zooms in on the picture she's painting i only have to assume on how she came in that's how she's painting yes how she's painting doesn't match up with the painting <laughs> because it's a person you can clearly see that it's a person spread eagle that she's painting yes but how she's painting doesn't match up with that kind of bush or brush stroke it's another interesting introduction to a character they are quirky but this one actually has a purpose it's you need mod in this movie to make it work because mod is the reason why he still sticks along with this thing and has to go see jackie treehorn you do need the character mod yes yeah but you don't need, well... You don't need Knox Lebowski. Harrington, though. He's there just for flavor. Yes. Yeah. Uh, this this move, th- this whole scene, it's just creepy. When he walks in, you can hear, like, I don't know if it's actually Maude getting in the moment, but you hear, like, some moaning in the background, and I right. wanted to make sure I paid attention to it. And it had, it just reminded me, it had the tones of the movie Hannibal. Okay, okay. Scene. I could it's see that. The, the creepiness of it. So 
Yeah. yeah just and you know, the word vagina makes men uncomfortable. And all I could think about was varsity blues. Penis, 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 vagina, vagina, vagina. Nope. Perfectly comfortable. <laughs> Never seen varsity blues. I, as soon as you leaned in. <laughs> uh, I mean, when you say penis, penis, vagina, I was like, if you were to have a conversation and somebody's always had saying the word penis and or vagina, they'd be like, do we have to say that? Steve, I know what I'm assigning you for homework. It's going to be varsity blues. I mean, I was watching this with my daughter. I can watch that one with my daughter. You watched Lebowski with your daughter? She was asleep. I was had it on my then phone. Then you didn't watch it with her. She just happened to be there. Okay. She you mean, it was like there. We, she cuddled up she's... and we sat there going, look it, that's Carl Hungus. I think, no, <laughs> she didn't make it to that <laughs> um, I think she made it to probably the dude sipping on the creamer. Yeah. She was out after that. And but still, it's a pretty low budget looking porno you got this there. Is a, this is such a shit porno. <laughs> This was log jamming, right? Yeah, and I don't understand where that title fits in. It's such a cliche. It's very cliche. You got the. the you don't understand how log jamming can be sexual. No, I can understand why. It's okay, sexual, okay. I didn't want to explain. How does it match? Usually, <sighs> this isn't part of my life. I like to explore. No, but go there, Steve. Sit on my couch. <laughs> let's listen. Let's listen. <laughs> I used to wait, work wait, in Wait, wait, if, if we do this right, let's do it right. Here we go. Okay, you ready? Go ahead. <laughs> I, I knew you were. I used to work at a video store. And uh, there, there, there was an adult section there. And I was responsible at time, at the young age of 17, 18, of going back and putting these movies away. The VHSs and the DVDs. Yeah. And they had some uh, pretty creative <laughs> names. Would you like me to tell you some? Yes, uh, let's hear a few. For the record. Let's hear a few. So a lot of them were um, spoofs. So like <laughs> the movie that was coming out was, you know, The Ring, right? The Ring. You know, the, the horror movie. Well, this one was called The Hole. And it was, <laughs> it was a spoof <laughs> off of that. And... <laughs> there, there was just a hint. I don't know why that one stuck out. Maybe it was a popular rent. I don't know. But it was, uh, that's what most of them. Oh, another one was, you know, they had Pulp Fiction. Um, Pulp Friction. Oh, okay. Was, was, was a good one. Okay. And I, I, I can't think of any of the other ones off the top of my head, but those kind of stuck out. And that is another edition of Steve's porno days. Okay. <laughs> so the reason why I went into that is just like log jamming. And then I see the cable guy. Where does this fit in? Yeah. I don't know why I'm still on that. Continue. Okay. The dude is giving a limo ride back to his apartment where the driver points out a blue Volkswagen Beetle that had been following him. Before the dude has a chance to do anything about it, he's shoved into another limo waiting for him on the street. Inside, Brant and Lebowski confront him about the fact that he never called them and yell that the kidnappers never got the money. 
Lebowski accuses Dude of stealing the money himself as Dude tries to reason that the royal we dropped off the money and that Bunny, since she apparently owes money all over town, most likely kidnapped herself and probably instructed her kidnappers to lie about the handoff. Brandt and Lebowski look skeptical before producing an envelope. Lebowski tells Dude that the kidnappers will be dealing directly with him now, and any mishaps will be avenged tenfold on him. Inside the envelope, Dude finds a severed pinky toe wrapped in gauze with green polish on the nail. He still has the white Russian he made. He left with the glass? I'll tell you, I'm damn impressed that there's still a drink in that glass. I mean, unless there's saran wrap on top of that glass, right. it should be gone. Exactly. Um... But it's crazy to see that's what the audience is focused on during this whole scene. <laughs> it's like, did he spill his drink? Well, in the number of times he says, and shit, man, shit, shit, man, shit, man. I love that uh, the big Lebowski goes, what exactly are you blathering about? Because I'm there too. I'm like, I'll tell you what take I'm- Take me, uh, tell me where to go in this movie. About. I mean, he's so high and drunk. He's just like, he's continuing with the same exact words as the big Lebowski says. I'll, I'll tell you what I'm blathering about. It's, 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 uh, it's, uh, 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 um, shit, yeah, man, man. <laughs> it's just like, <sighs> yeah. And we see the, we see the pinky toe and it's fucking gross. It is gross. Yeah. Uh, in a small cafe, the dude tells Walter about the severed toe. It's not a small cafe. It's a big boy, actually. Damn right. Yeah. He's an Elias big boy. Mm-hmm. The dude tells Walter about the severed toe who doesn't believe it's a bunnies. Walter calls the kidnappers a bunch of fucking amateurs for using such an obviously fake ruse, but the dude isn't convinced. Walter tries to convince him by saying that he can get a toe for him in no time at all with his choice of nail polish color. Despite Walter's unwavering stance, dude fears for his life. If the kidnappers don't get him, Lebowski will. Walter's a man who can get you things. Like a toe. You get your toe, I get your toe. Chips. I get your toe by 3 p.m. And let's no, let's talk can't. let's talk about the setting here. Big boys. <sighs> Used to love their breakfast buffet. I was reading this and I was telling the boy, I said, dude, you would love an Elias big boy breakfast buffet. Oh my god, yes. Four was... bucks all you can eat. <laughs> All you can eat, pancakes, waffles, eggs, sausage, bacon, hash brown. Even if you were that weird one and wanted grits, yep. porridge, you can have home fries. He goes, was there cereal? It's like, yes, but nobody ate the damn cereal. No, <laughs> get that at home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, you just, oh, it was great. It kind of reminded me because yesterday we went to, we went to CeCe's Pizza. Ooh, mm. It was good. You know what I could, you know, when I saw this scene, the first thing I craved wasn't the breakfast buffet. It was the Slim Jim. Remember the Slim Jim sandwich they had at Big Boy? Snap into a Slim Jim. Not that one, macho man. That's the only one I know. I've never had the Slim Jim. Oh, my God. Okay, at home, the dude tries to relax in the bathtub, smoking a joint and listening to music. His phone rings, and the answering machine records the LAPD telling him that they've recovered the car. Dude is overjoyed for a moment until he hears a loud banging in his living room. He looks up to see three men breaking into his apartment wearing dark clothes. The leader, whom Dude recognizes as Uli slash Kirk Hungus, the nihilist, along with his two cohorts, Franz and Kiefer, enters the bedroom bathroom with a ferret on a leash. He dunks the terrified animal in the tub where it thrashes and shrieks as Dude tries to avoid it. Uli takes the ferret out, letting it shake off, and tells Dude that they want their money tomorrow or they'll cut off his Johnson. Okay. It's, we cut off your Johnson. The screams that Jeff Bridges does in the tub when they drop the marmoset in the bath is hysterical. 
<laughs> like, I didn't expect that to come out of him. And you know what? My Movie Planet podcast goggles were on. And out of that whole entire scene, he's going crazy, splashing here, splashing there, trying to get this thing out. When it goes back and after they leave, he's still in the bathtub. It's still full of water. Yes. There should be a lot less water in there. And I'm now more convinced than ever that the Coen brothers care more about their characters than the story. Like, oh, I got a weird idea for, okay, where do we, I don't know, just make a new scene. We'll put it here. They lived these characters. They did. Uh, the following morning, the dude goes to the impound lot to collect his car, which turns up badly damaged and reeking with a terrible stench, an apparent victim of a joyride and temporary home to some vagrants. The briefcase is gone. Dude asks the officer at the lot if anyone is following up on who might have taken the car, but the officer chuckles and sarcastically says that their department has them working in shifts on the case. Yeah, that makes sense. But the credence tapes were still there. Uh, at the bar in the bowling alley, dude expresses his fears to an unsympathetic Walter and an unhelpful Donnie. Unable to cheer him up, they leave dude at the bar to find an open lane. The stranger sits down next to dude and orders a sarsaparilla. What is a sarsaparilla? I was thinking about that. You know what? I'm, I meant to look it up. And I thought it was, it looked like a, uh, it looked like a root beer. Is it? Okay. It's got to have alcohol in it, right? Sarsaparilla. Yep. See, it says it's a soft drink. It's a soft drink. I've never heard of that before. He orders it like it's a normal thing. It has sassafras <laughs> and sarsaparilla. It's been banned by the FBA due to its carcinogenic effects. Okay. Makes <laughs> sense why I've never seen it. can't order that. it anymore. <laughs> Good to know. Uh, and it says, is root beer just sarsaparilla? Both beverages are named, a sarsaparilla is made by sarsaparilla vine, and root beer is made from roots of a sassafras tree. Okay. So root beer is the roots of a sassafras tree. Sarsaparilla is made from sarsaparilla vine. So no, they're not the same. Okay, well, I just learned a lot about root beer. Okay. It's a soft drink. Yeah. Uh, so the stranger compliments the dude's style and wonders why he uses so many cuss words. He offers dude one piece of advice before leaving. Quote, sometimes you eat the bar and sometimes the bar, well, eats you. Gary, the bartender, hands dude the phone. It's Maud. She's miffed that the dude hasn't seen the doctor yet and instructs him to meet her at the loft. That quote doesn't make any fucking sense. No, it doesn't, but it makes more. It might make more sense at the end of the movie because the dude says that same exact line. But it still doesn't make sense. That's... The dude abides. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> Sam Elliott, we get him in person now, not just the narrator. He's a national yeah. treasure. He looks like Jim Leland. <laughs> and you can't see him talk. And it bothers me. That's what I focus on. The big mustache? Like I, try, I try to see if I can see his lips moving. And yes, you can see him, but... And, you know, I, I tried to find a silver lining to this conversation but I was just, I was so wrapped up in the Sam Elliottness. <laughs> like the conversation between the narrator and the dude is just common talk. Yes. It doesn't make any sense. No. Uh, there, dude informs Maud that he thinks Bunny was really kidnapped, possibly by Uli. Maud disagrees, saying that Bunny knows Uli and the kidnappers cannot be acquaintances. She then dismisses dude to take a call, reminding him to see the doctor. Now we get David Thewlis as Knox or whomever the guy is that's sitting in the chair just giggling like a weirdo. Uh, who the hell is that guy? 
That's not Knox. No, that's not. I meant not. I didn't mean to say Knox. Yeah. You apologize to Knox. I don't know his name. Then why am I apologizing? Because the real Knox is better. I don't know his name. His name's Knox. Another Coen Brothers. Go better, go better, go better, go better, go better. (laughs) From Bull Durham. It's Knox. I know. That is the better Knox. Okay. Um, It's just, I. you know what? I'm jumping on your bandwagon of the Coen Brothers know how to do a character. That's all he is. Yeah. At the clinic, the doctor tells dude to remove his shorts, insisting dude's assurance that he was only hit in the face. That's where you kind of get that view from the dude, like, something screwy here. <sighs> like, he doesn't know what's going on. Yeah. I couldn't even write something for this scene. I, would... I, th- I thought of that right now, so it's like... <laughs> driving, okay. driving home, dude enjoys a joint while listening to Credence, but soon notices a blue Volkswagen following him. Distracted, he tries to flick his joint out the window, but it bounces back and lands in his lap, burning him. He screams and dumps beer on his lap before he swerves and crashes into a dumpster. When he looks out the window, the blue car is gone. Looking down, he notices a piece of paper stuck in the car seat. It's a graded homework sheet with the name Larry Sellers written on it. I feel like this is just a series of sketches involving the character of the dude. Oh, I, yes, I totally agree. And the CCR song, Looking out my back door, I think yeah. is what the name. I, I think is what it's called. But every time I hear this song on the radio, I just gotta go <laughs> smash the top of my um, roof of my car. And I don't know if it's the actual words, but I always thought it said, "Dude, dude, dude, looking out my back door." I'm like, "How perfect is this?" And then when you listen to the lyrics, it's very um, "Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds." It's just outlandish stuff that they talk about <laughs> okay and it's just like it just matches the dude's dreamscape mentality she's it, tripping on everything if i was seeing this in the theater this is where i walk out no you want to see this thing finish granted it doesn't matter but that night at marty's dance quartet walter reveals that he's done some research on larry and discovered where he lives near the in and out burger joint he is also thrilled to report that larry's father is arthur digby sellers a famous screenwriter who wrote 156 page episodes of the show branded in 1965 is that a real show I have no idea okay walter is certain that larry has the briefcase of money and that their troubles are over I do like the fact that the dude brought Donnie to the dance recital. Donnie looks so interested. <laughs> yeah, he wanted the he wanted the you know burgers from the In and Out Burger. Yeah, so that's and why they brought him along. Yeah, S- Steve Buscemi, we want you to be in our movie. Here's what you need to know: every time you deliver a line, you'll be told to shut the fuck up. You in? You're out of your own. Good. Yeah, yeah. Of course he's in. Yeah. Uh, They pull up to the house where the dude is dismayed to see a brand new red Corvette parked on the street outside. A Hispanic housekeeper lets them into the seller's home where they see the elderly Arthur Sellers in an iron lung in the living room. Over the hissing of the compressor, Walter calls out that he's a big fan of Arthur's and that his work was a source of inspiration to him before the housekeeper brings in young Larry, a 15-year-old with a deadpan expression. Walter and dude interrogate Larry about the money and the fact that he stole dude's car, but they get no response. Not even a wavering glance from the teenager. Walter resolves to go to plan B. He tells Larry to watch out the window as he and Dude go back to the car where Donnie is waiting. Walter removes a tire iron from Dude's trunk and proceeds to smash the Corvette, shouting, This is what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass! 
However, the car's real owner comes out of his house and rips the tire iron from Walter, shouting that he just bought the car last week before going over to the dude's car and breaking all the windows. Dude drives silently home, wind blowing in through the broken windows as Walter and Donnie eat in and out burgers. Okay, the interrogation had no planning. What the hell did they talk about on the way to the house, Steve? That's exactly what they were going to do. That's about it. This is probably a five-minute plan that they put together. Actually, it's probably Walter just wanting to... Well, they, they didn't know that the Corvette was there. Probably just wanted to beat the living crap out of him to begin with. And then Walter all of a sudden... like knew that like okay this is fed here we're just gonna smash this crap so yeah how did he know to bring a tire i guess the tire iron had to be well it was in there it was in the car right but well i was hoping that the there was owner, no plan b there i thought no the owner b. was gonna beat the hell out of walter with a tire iron i was like do it end this motherfucker now and he did the car last week yeah he took <laughs> out the dude's car and how did how did he know that was their car that they arrived in it's the only other car there and his buddy was sitting in there poor donnie like the kid poor donnie yeah the kid is stone cold he's the new generation of a rebel <laughs> well he's stone cold because he didn't do anything <laughs> uh back home dude talks to walter over the phone as he nails a two by four to the floor near the front door he yells at Walter, telling him to leave him alone and that he wants to handle the situation before himself before agreeing to go to their next bowling practice. He hangs up and props a chair against the door, braced by a piece of wood, and turns away as the door opens outwardly, and Treehorn's two thugs from the beginning of the film walk in. They tell the dude that Jackie Treehorn wishes to meet with him. He can't even operate hammer and nails properly, Steve. No, he can't. <laughs> I can't tell if he's stoned or stupid. He's both. He's stoned and drunk. He's probably just stoned. You yeah, like, like it's funny how that how when he sets this up, the door opens out, and the, yeah, the, the chair just falls over. I was like, my fir my first thought was, I bet that door opens outwardly, and it does. And I went, <laughs> Yep. It's uh, the dude is I love that you love this the dude is taken to a large mansion overlooking a beachfront where a tribal orgy like party is going on inside dude meets porno producer Jackie Treehorn who appears appears friendly and agreeable as he mixes the dude a white Russian and sympathizes for his lost drug Treehorn asks him where Bunny is to which dude responds that he thought Treehorn knew Treehorn denies knowing anything about Bunny's abduction and theorizes that Bunny faked her own kidnapping and then ran off knowing how much money she owed him and the dude just keeps on tumbling like a tumbleweed all over town hey this would be a good spot on the beach to see a tumbleweed wouldn't it yes Treehorn is then excused for a phone call. He writes something down on a notepad before leaving the room momentarily. Employing the trick of rubbing a pencil lightly over the pad of paper to see what was written, Dude reveals a doodle of a man with a rather large penis. He rips the paper out of the pad and sticks it in his pocket, don't know why, before returning to the couch as Treehorn comes back. He offers Dude a 10% finder's fee if he tells them where the money is. Dude tells him that Larry Sellers should have the money, though Treehorn is not convinced. Dude insists he's telling the truth as his words begin to slur and his vision glazes over. He mumbles, all the dude ever wanted was his rug back. It really tied the room together before he passes out, drugged from the drink. Oh, great. Another drug trip. Yeah, I was thinking about this. It's just like, can I imagine like 
okay, what if Jackie Treehorn really took the advice? Now you got this porno mogul going to this 15-year-old's house asking where the heck this briefcase and all this money is. I'm sure stranger things have happened in that industry. What the hell is going on? It's just one thing after another and all of the twists and turns that this just goes through, it's just where can it go next? I don't know. The dude falls into a deep dream where he sees himself happily starring in a Jackie Treehorn produced bowling picture entitled Gutter Balls with Maud dressed in a sedu- seducing Viking outfit as his co-star. They dance together and throw a bowling ball down the lane. The ball turns into the dude floating above the lane floor and passing under ladies' skirts. When he hits the pins at the end, he suddenly sees the three nihilists dressed in tight clothes and snapping super large scissors chasing him. He runs from them, terrified as he wakes from his dream, staggering down a street in Malibu while a police car pulls up behind him. The unit picks him up as he slurs the theme song to Branded. Gutter balls the porno. Just went from weird to weirder. And... This is a bad porno because there is no sex in this. That's that's okay. At, at this point, I always did. I always hated this scene, only because it's like, okay, I feel like this movie is dragging. I thought this I movie, wrote that. <laughs> this should be a ninety-minute movie, not a hundred and twenty minutes. I agree. You could cut thirty minutes from this easy. Mm-hmm. Um. At the Malibu police station, the chief of police goes through the dude's wallet before he tells the dude that Jackie Treehorn pointed, phoned him to report that he was drunk and disorderly at his garden party. He tells dude that Treehorn is an important source of income in Malibu and demands that he stay out of the town for good. Dude replies that he wasn't listening, which incites the chief to throw his coffee mug at him, hitting him in the head. Ouch. I mean, this is just like the scene with Jeffrey Lebowski. Yes. Except this time he gets his ass kicked. Oh, we're going to see another We're going to see another callback in a few more scenes here uh, to the original Lebowski scene. Okay. Yeah. Dude takes a taxi ride home and requests that the driver change the radio station since he had a rough night and hates the Eagles. The hostile driver doesn't take kindly to this and throws the dude out. As he stands on the street, a red convertible passes by at high speed, unnoticed by the dude. It's Bunny, listening to Viva Las Vegas, and, as we see, with a complete set of toes on each foot. I'm so confused right now. What? I, I don't know what's happening anymore. It's not her toe! I know that. It's like the twist in Usual Suspects. Whoa. <laughs> this is nothing like that. Because in The Usual Suspects, the twist is that Kaiser Sose was verbal kint the whole time and was the mastermind behind a crime. The twist here is there is no crime in this crime movie. Yes, it is. The crime was that Bunny was kidnapped. Bunny was never kidnapped, hence no crime. There was a B and E, and the rug dude's rug got soiled. Is it a B and E if he has the door unlocked? <laughs> yes, that's just it an E. Not, that's just not, an E. That's just an entering. Not supposed to be there, man. There it is. 
Dude returns to his apartment to find it completely wrecked. He enters and trips over the two-by-four he nailed on the floor because he's a moron. When he looks up, he finds Maud standing before him dressed in nothing but his robe. She drops it to the floor and tells him to make love to her. What the fuck am I watching? Afterwards, they lie in bed together as the dude smokes a joint and tells her about his past as a student activist and his current hobbies, which include bowling and the occasional acid flashback. As he climbs out of bed to make a white Russian drink, Maud asks about the apartment, and Dude explains that Treehorn's thugs most likely vandalized it looking for Lebowski's money. Maud retorts that her father actually has no money, the $1 million cash was all her mother's or else belongs to the foundation, and that Lebowski's only concern is to run the charities. Maud gives him an allowance, but his weakness is vanity, hence the slut. She tells Dude that as she folds into a yoga position, which she claims increases the chances of conception... What the fuck? Dude chokes on his drink, but Maud assures him that she has no intention of having Dude be a part of the childbearing process, nor does she want to see him socially. The dude then figures that's why she wanted him to visit the doctor so badly until an idea suddenly comes to mind about Lebowski. The dude could be the dad. Don't make a sequel. Do not make a sequel. I don't want to see an older dude, grandfather, who needs to go find his kid or his kid finds him, just leave this alone. Don't do what must be done. <laughs> no, that must not be done. The fact that they made a Jesus rolls is a travesty. <laughs> do what must be done. Dude calls Walter to pick him up and take him to Lebowski's mansion right away, despite Walter's protest that he doesn't drive on Shabbos unless it's an emergency. Dude assures him that it's just that. Dude dresses and goes outside where he sees the blue Volkswagen parked just down the street. He, he just... Let's introduce another character. Dude dress... Okay. He walks over and demands that the man within get out. The man introduces himself as Dufino and explains that he thinks Dude is a fellow private eye who is brilliantly playing two sides against each other. The thugs and Lebowski and means to no harm to him or his girlfriend. Confused, Dude tells Dufino to stay away from his lady friend and asks if he's working for Lebowski or Treehorn. Dufino admits that he's employed by the Knutsons, Bunny's family. Apparently, Bunny's real name is Fawn, and she ran away from her Minnesota home a year ago, and Dufino's been investigating since. As Walter pulls up, Dude tells Dufino to, again, stay away from his lady friend and leaves. The plot is just meandering now. <laughs> this is the farthest I've ever made into this movie, by the way. It's, <laughs> it's another little funny thing. It's just like when he shows, when he finally tells her that her name is Fawn and her Minnesota family so he says, they wanted me to add this picture of Holmes just so she can look at it and maybe feel homesick. And it's nothing but a barren wasteland. I think- And two Luke buildings. Sky and two buildings. Luke, Luke Skywalker's home looks more inviting than this. Yes! <laughs> What on earth would make her think that I'm, I'm homesick for this? <laughs> We're not there, done, Steve. There's just, uh, I'll, I'll give with you on that. It's There's a lot of moving parts in this movie. <laughs> yeah, but they're not connected to anything. They're intertwined. At a local restaurant, the three German nihilists and a sallow blonde woman still sit together ordering pancakes. The camera pans down to the woman's foot covered in a bandage, which, where her pinky toe should be, is soaked in dried blood. Driving out to Lebowski's mansion, Dude explains his new theory. Why did Lebowski do nothing to him if he knew the payoff never happened? If Lebowski thought that the dude took the money, why didn't he ask it for it back? 
because the briefcase given to dude was never full of money since the dude never opened it to look at the contents. You threw a ringer out for a ringer. He also figures that Lebowski chose him in otherwise fuck up to get Bunny back because he never wanted her back. He wanted her dead while he embezzled money from the foundation as a ransom. Walter agrees with the theory, but still believes he shouldn't have been bothered on the Shabbos. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I like that last sentence. <laughs> now you got the reasoning now. As they pull up to the mansion, they see Bunny's red convertible crashed into some shrubbery near the front fountain. Bunny is running around the grounds naked, while inside, Brant attempts to pick up her discarded clothes. He tells them that Bunny went to visit friends in Palm Springs without telling anyone, and she has returned. Despite his protests, Walter and Dude walk past him into the study where a stern-looking Lebowski sits. Dude demands an answer. He accuses Lebowski of keeping the million for himself while he used the Dude as a scapegoat to cover up the missing money. Lebowski says that it's his word against Dude's and no one would believe a deadbeat over him. This angers Walter, who figures Lebowski to be a fake handicap besides a phony millionaire, and lifts Lebowski out of his chair, dropping him to the floor. However, Lebowski lies on the, still on the floor, whimpering, and dude tells Walter to help him back in his chair. I love that the dude has now turned into the guys who pissed on his rug earlier. Where's the fucking money, Lebowski? Oh, the carpet pissers. That's exactly yeah. what they said to him. I never recognize this. Now it's that's that's kind of cool, man. And uh, again, the dude, he's I, I get a little bit more respect from now. He cares for other people. He wanted to get him back in his chair because he knew he was a cripple or um, handicapped. I never claimed he didn't care about other people. What I think I meant was, why does he hang out with someone who has no regard for other people? If Very he cares so here. much about people. They're a yin and yang. Trying to change Walter. At the bowling alley, Donnie misses. He misses a strike. Foreshadowing. For the first Something, time. Something's not right. And puzzles over this as Walter drones on about the war in Kuwait as it relates to Vietnam. To the dude who doesn't seem to pay attention as he paints over his fingernails with clear polish. Jesus walks over, criticizing the change in schedule from Saturday to Wednesday before issuing sexual threats. The dude, Walter, and Donnie sit unfazed as they leave the alley and head into the parking lot. They are faced by the three German nihilists, once again, who stand in front of the dude's flaming car with a portable radio blasting German techno music. Well, they finally did it, he despairs. They killed my fucking car. The nihilists <laughs> demand the money or they will kill the girl, but dude tells them that he knows they never had the girl bunny in the first place. The nihilists reply that they don't care and still want the money, but dude tries to explain that Lebowski's money was never valid. He never intended to pay them off, and Walter shouts that without a hostage, there is no ransom. Franz complains that his girlfriend had to give up her pinky toe because she thought she was getting $1 million, but they'll settle for whatever Walter, Donnie, and Dude have in their pockets. Donnie, in the back, asks if the men are going to hurt them, and Walter assures him that they're nihilists and cowards, as Dude pulls out his wallet. When Walter refuses to take his own out, Uli pulls out a sword, and Walter engages in a fight with them throwing his bowling ball into Franz's stomach. Oh, he did throw a ball. Um, Walter attacks Uli and bites off his ear, spitting into the air. He unloads a heavy hit to Uli's face, calling him an anti-Semite. He also hits Kiefer in the face with his radio and bashes him in the back, knocking him out. He turns around and sees Donnie on the ground, clutching his chest. Walter comforts him, saying Donnie's having a heart attack. He orders the dude to call an ambulance. 
Where did he get the radio from? I don't know. Hmm. Must have been written in the script that there was one that showed. I, I didn't even know that was a radio that he hit it with. Yeah. Uh, I thought Donnie got shot, but you've got a good point. Yeah, no shots were fired, dude. Yeah. Yeah, that's what Walter says. Um. Anything else? No. Well, I mean, the fact that uh, when Walter throws that bowling ball into the uh, what Flea's character, his gut—it's just so vicious. And how Flea sells it was that Flea? That's Flea. I did not know that. Yep, he's got—he's credited in this. That's Flea. He's one okay. of the guys. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> the dude and Walter are then seen at a funeral parlor speaking with the curator. Donnie, having passed away, was cremated, and they negotiate how his remains will be handled. Walter is outraged at the high price of the urn. The cur- Didn't they just say he's not going to die? No. Well. Oh, he just didn't man. get shot. He didn't get shot. He had a heart attack. Yeah. Okay. That's what Walter says. He says, says no shots were fired. It's a heart attack. Oh, okay. Um, Walter's outraged at the high price of the urn. The curator tells him that the urn is their most modestly priced receptacle and that the ashes must be given to them in a container of some sort. Walter asks if there's a Ralph's store nearby, and he and the dude resolve to receive, receive Donnie's ashes in a Folger's coffee can. <laughs> they... They travel together to a windy cliffside overlooking the ocean where everybody knows where this joke is going, where Walter gives a heartfelt speech about Donnie along with a seemingly unrelated reference to Vietnam before opening the can and shaking out the ashes. The wind blows them back into dude's face, coating his clothes, beard, and sunglasses. Walter apologizes and attempts to brush the ashes off, but the dude yells at him for always making everything a fucking travesty and scolds him for yet another needless Vietnam rant. Walter hugs him and tells him to... Fuck it, man. Let's go bowling. Walter's a psychopath. What's the first time Walter is generally sorry? Yeah, but is he? He is. But is he? He, He's sorry like a little kid. Well, he's sorry for getting the ashes on, on the dude's clothing. Right. And honestly, whenever I see stuff like this in movies or in TV shows, it makes me want to barf. That's dead how many, people. How many movies have you seen that that's actually happened? How many? I would say I've seen that gag so many times that when I saw them walking up the cliff in this, I knew what the joke was going to be. Oh, that's a niche thing. I didn't think that was a, I guess. I know you've seen a lot of movies. Yeah. But, uh, um, usually, I, usually you see a gag like that in a sitcom. I, I I do have an issue with this scene. Oh, what's that? And the issue is is that I I understand the gag, the ashes blowing on Jeff Bridges, but you don't actually see that it's windy until the camera pans back and he's brushing off Jeff Bridges, like when he's shaking the can. Jeff Bridges' hair is not moving. It's still, it's kind of still there. Okay. And you don't see any movement in, I know Walter, he's got shorter hair. Yeah. But it's a lot longer than ours. You should see something kind of moving for the wind to be that vicious. You don't really see it until it pans back and you see it in the dude's clothes because he wears more looser clothes. Yeah. So I was like, it's not really windy. Why is it blowing that vicious, but nothing else is moving? Yeah. I don't know. That was like, those are my movie planet podcast eyes. 
they that's, work. That's nitpicky. But yeah, I guess he's Walter's still stuck in Vietnam. Yeah. And he will be for the rest of his life. And he he's sorry, but he he obviously had quite the experience where he took the time to maybe that's how he knows how to say him you know farewell to somebody by relating it to Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> the dude eases down. At the bowling alley, the stranger sits at the bar as the dude orders two beers. They greet each other, and the stranger asks how he's been doing. Oh, you know, strikes and gutters, ups and downs, answers the dude as he collects his beers and goes to leave. The stranger tells him to take it easy, and the dude turns to reply, Yeah, well... The dude abides. In the final shot, the stranger finds comfort in those words and rambles to the viewers about how things seem to have turned out fine for dude and Walter. He was sad to see Donnie go, but happens to know that there's a little Lebowski on the way. He assures us that the dude is always out there taking it easy for all us sinners and orders another sarsaparilla drink for himself. Well, there I go. Rambling again. <laughs> like the movie. And that's all, folks. Okay. According to the top critics at Rotten Tomatoes, it's got tomato meter reading of 72%, 43 fresh reviews, 17 rotten. The critics on average gave this film a 6.8 out of 10. And the consensus says, quote, the big Lebowski's shaggy dog story won't satisfy everybody, but those who abide will be treated to a rambling succession of comic delights with Jeff Bridges' laconic performance really tying the movie together. It's very nicely put. I thought you'd like that. <laughs> I do. But let's see what the critics said about this one from the rotten side and see if they got a point. Edward Guthman from the San Francisco Chronicle says, there are more ideas here, more wacko side characters and plot curlicues than the film can support. And inevitably, it deflates from having to shoulder so much. There is a lot. Yeah. There are a lot of side characters. Uh, Gene Siskel from Siskel and Ebert said a major disappointment from Fargo writer directors, Joel and Ethan Cohen. The film is being billed as a comedy with bowling scenes, but it doesn't hold a candle to 1996's bowling comedy Kingpin. Pa <laughs> well, this isn't a comedy. It was billed as a comedy. Was it? And Hillel it Italy of the Associated Press says, a letdown, another comedy that's strange for the sake of being strange. This one's a riff on detective movies. It has nothing to say, but does take a long time to say it. <laughs> I w I'll say, be honest with you, when Sam Elliott showed up at the end, I thought Sam Elliott was going to have that one piece of thing, that one piece of wisdom that makes you go, oh, I get it now. I got to watch the whole thing all over again. But when he says the dude is just taking it on the chin for all those sinners, I was like, he ain't doing shit. <laughs> um, the audience score, which is the average rating the audience gave this film, was a 4.5 out of 5. 93% agreeing it's a three or higher. That, that my huge. friends, is a cult hit right there. Yes, it is. But the movie's over, Steve. Were you entertained? Go for it. Yes, I totally was. And I'm going to be honest. I was groggy and I was tired before the movie started. And I, I was like, I didn't really want to do this. But when the dude got a swirly all the way until the end, I was wide awake and entertained the entire time. Uh, How about you? There were times when I was entertained, the quirky characters kept my interest. There you go. Yeah. That's what the Coen brothers do. So they got you there. Well, let's figure out if the words got it right and whether this movie is worth your time or not. 
Um, I think the awards got it right. It was nominated for nothing. Yeah, uh, that's fine. Including the Raspberry Awards, which means it wasn't bad. It just wasn't great either. That's, that's, that's your opinion, man. Well, it's the opinion of every critic out there, apparently. Uh, all right. On to our segment titled Top 3, Bottom 3. This is where we talk about the three things we want to highlight in this movie, and then we'll go over the three things that are bad, unforgivable, or downright travesties. We'll start with the top three. Steve, you can go first. Go. John Totoro. Yes. The Jesus. The Jesus. I love... I, you finally, I think, recognize that he is one of my favorite side characters. Oh, yes. Maybe in all of cinema. It's in your top ten, and, I'm sure. And he has probably the least amount of screen time out of all my favorite side characters. Um, nine number two, Walters subjects extreme highs and extreme lows, which I know you hate. Oh my God. <laughs> but it's just, uh, he could just move on a dime. And I think that's just, that's a, that's a kudos to John Goodman. Okay. And my number one is the writing. It flows so well. I think the, the wording, the, the subtle jokes, maybe they're jokes to me that aren't jokes to anybody else, but I just think the writing just flows. It's, it's, it's great. That's my number one. I love the writing. Okay. What about you? My number three is the metaphor of the dude as a tumbling tumbleweed is so appropriate because that's all he is. He just tumbles through every scene. Yes. My number two is the quirky characters, the hallmark of a Coen brothers movie. And my number right. one, I like Sam Elliott's narration. He's got a good narrating voice like Morgan Freeman. Those are my top three. That's your number one. Wow. And the bottom three, Steve. The movie does have his slow parts. The dream sequences make it drag. I I could probably do without both of these, and it might be that's that could be 10 minutes right there. Yeah. Uh, mod relationship with the dude. I, I realized know. in this movie. It's a Lebowski wanting to conceive with another Lebowski. Yes. That is gross. And I think I spelled it wrong. The nihilists. (laughs) They're just, they're just quirky and weird. And they're just, they're idiots. Mm -hmm. They're bigger idiots. Actually, I think the biggest idiots are the two goons who get Lebowski in the beginning. Okay. These are they, these these guys run it second. Um, what are yours? My number three. This movie is less than two hours long, but it feels like three hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, my number two, Walter. <sighs> Just Walter. That's all, Walter. And my number one, Donnie did not deserve to die. Walter deserved to die. Oh, ooh, yeah. I went there. I went there. You did go there. I did. Uh, but. Com- you have to admit, compared to what I've done in the past with my top three and bottom three, these are actually three on both sides of the uh, coin, very tame things to put in. They are. Your 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 top your top three are very tame. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Critics rating. Now you're gonna get the last word here because you nominated it. All right. Yeah. We use an A to F scale here on the movie planet. A C is considered average. A plus is the highest. F is the lowest. The movie is so bad it receives Fs from all the hosts. It goes to a new category of movie. The mo- It's not a new category. I got to change that. The movie planet global killer where Solo used to reside. JC. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question is, what do you give 1998's Big Lebowski in the crime movie genre by today's standards? And I'll start. 
I will mute. Go ahead. It's hard to say whether this movie is milestone in time and pop culture when I didn't appreciate it when it came out in 1998. In 1996, I saw Fargo and thought it was a masterpiece. Four years later, I'm 21, I see Oh Brother Where Art Thou, and I was officially a fan of Coen Brothers. It wasn't until I was 25, 26 years old that I came across The Big Lebowski, and here I stand 18 years later, and I finally made it through the film. This movie has everything one would want out of a Coen Brothers movie. A crime at the center, quirky characters surrounding, and a unique hero. However, the one thing that's missing is, well, none of it's all that interesting. The dude is everything that's wrong with society today, but he's hailed as a hero. The crime isn't really a crime because it never actually occurred. The quirky characters serve no purpose but to serve as vignettes as the dude just passes through this phase of his life. Each scene leads to the next without any reason for it leading to the next scene. I feel like they could have come up with the character of the dude and then we're like, and, and the dude could do this. Or what if the dude did this? And oh, and he has a crazy ass friend that causes all these problems for him who used to be a, a Vietnam vet. These are interesting ideas. And if this movie was tighter, it might've made for a more memorable movie. But I'm likely to forget this one because it's just so ordinary. It doesn't do anything awful, but it doesn't excel at anything either. It is perfectly average. It's the dude of crime movies. It moves in and out of our lives, and we remember the one-liners, but not a whole lot of anything else. Plot-wise, this movie was a decrescendo. It started loud and strong, and slowly but surely my interest dwindled until it was nearly gone by the final five minutes. In the end, when it comes to Coen Brother movies, this is one of the lesser. When it comes to crime movies, it's middling. When it comes to comedies, it has some very good comedic moments. But being that I'm looking at this as merely a crime movie, I'm giving this a C minus. A shade below the average, saved by the performances, but not quite living up to the output the Coen Brothers can actually crank out. Steve, you're up and I am I, I am I am muting me. All right. If I had to give this a grade back in college, it would be an A. But I loved it as a comedy. There were so many funny moments in this movie. I thought it was a comedy. But today I'm looking this as a crime movie. A little different. It's gonna be tough because it's such a great character movie people who love this movie love the characters the dude mannerisms walter's extreme highs and lows donnie's lovableness brant's professional awkwardness maude's creepy weirdness and the carpet piece the carpet pissers idioticness i think i think they are the dumber part of this movie dumber than the dude seriously i think they are and the dude is pretty spacious he's out there as a crime movie i'll look at what crime is driving the plot there are a few dude got his rug soiled on after a bni jeff lebowski the big lebowski is a fraud and embezzling money from a youth program what a shitbag bunny wants in on the money because she wants to rid of the debt that she's owed so she works with the nihilist to run away again she originally ran away from home. Now she wants to run away from all the debt. The dude gets wrapped up in one thing after another, all because of his good friend, Walter. 
Walter just wants to help, but makes everything so difficult and it creates an avalanche of problems that just amplifies what the dude wanted. It's fucking rug back. I mean, it, it did tie the room together. In the end, did he get his rug? I don't think so. Did the crime get solved? I don't know. Is the main character happy at the end? Yes. Some unfortunate things did happen. If they didn't, the movie would just be terrible. Donnie's death is was out of left field, but it brings a sense of peace among the dude. We all know a dude out there, somewhere, living his life on our money somewhere, enjoying the simple things that we take for granted, that he or she is just taking advantage of. But I'll take comfort in that. I'm giving this, I originally had, I originally had a B plus and then I had a B, but you did bring up some valid points that I can't get away from. And I think it's from a crime perspective that I'll take, I, I can live with the fact that it's a C plus, that it is a slightly above average. Cause in my opinion, I put this as a C like average is a C. So I put it just a little bit above at a C plus. I didn't, I, I, I'm the one that chose for a crime pantheon. I get that. So when I look at it from a crime movie, I can't deny that this is actually a average crime movie. So C plus. C plus. So it's average then is a C. Yes. So it's perfectly average. It's number three in the pantheon, in the crime pantheon. Gotcha. Um, it may be at number three when Josh and I do Jackie Brown because I'm not high on Jackie Brown either. Never uh, seen it. Yeah. Uh, it's what it's one of those Quentin Tarantino films that nobody really saw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but this is interesting because you're right. There are certain movies where you almost don't want to pick a genre because you're like, it could be three different genres. Mm-hmm. And Josh did this the other week when he was like, why? Because Josh is a big Spielberg fan. Josh was looking at the grades and he goes, how on earth did I give Jaws a B a B minus. And I said he gave it a B minus because it was in the horror pantheon. And uh his rationale behind it was it, the horror doesn't really happen as often as you expect in a horror movie. It's a very he said it's he goes, it's more of a drama. I go, it's not really a drama. And he goes, Actually, it's an adventure movie. And he goes, I go, what? He goes, well, yeah, because the, the guys go on the adventure to go kill the shark. Yeah. And I well, said, that yeah. That happen until halfway through the movie, though. I said, that's halfway through the movie. Yeah. You know? It's just, there's certain, and I go, listen, we can all agree Jaws is an A movie overall. We know it's an A movie. We know it's a, per, a near perfect movie. But if we look at things strictly from what slot is it going in, changes the way we look at things a little bit. It does, because if I put, I look at it as a comedy, I'm going to give it a higher grade. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of the, the, the uniqueness of what we do here is that we pigeonhole it. Yeah, and I mean, there's the, there's the argument out there that says, oh, you know, Big Lebowski, what kind of movie is it? Oh, it's a sports movie. It's bowling. It says, well, if it's a sports movie, it's going to get lower than a C. <laughs> well, Steve, maybe in season eight, we'll start to say, okay, 
you get to split a movie into different categories. Oh, oh, you got me because because you always turn my wheels. <laughs> you know how you always go, you know, is, is there a movie out there that you'd like to change a grade to? What's your rationale? Well, what if you were allotted to? Well, is there a movie out there you'd like to change pantheons? Can you give your rationale? I was thinking about this midway through us talking about this movie. And I think in order for us to do that, we'd have to get the majority of the host to agree it changes pantheons. So between the, the, the usuals, you, me, Josh, two out of three. Oh, I think if you, you'd have to officially give it a grade. I think if yeah, you, because yeah. I know you go on there and like, you know, are there anything that you'd like to update? Oh yeah, I've seen the Big Lebowski. You know, I, I would I would give it a B minus. Right. If you've given a grade, then yes, you would have a say that if you you have to have um, given a grade. I like that. But like so, but, but like for example, Deadpool. Would you ever want to change it? Well, I haven't given my grade yet, so I have no say. Even though I've seen the movie, I still haven't given my grade yet, and I wouldn't just give a grade spontaneously just to move it no. you know, you'd have to give it some honest some, some time and some thoughts so but no yeah i i just i thought about that and it would be a nice little no and just, i would have to be a heavy you know a serious conversation to move a movie from one pantheon to another that could almost be a whole show where we just go guys this today's show is nothing about a movie it's going to be basically we have three movies up for debate in which pantheon they belong in and we'll keep it to like two or three movies and that's it. We'll just talk about those. Yeah. Oh man. I like, I like reviewing old stuff. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Well, it's things that you like, uh, critics hats off. Do you love this movie? Like this movie or none of the above? And I'll say this is a none of the above. It's not hate. It's ambivalence. Steve. I love it. <laughs> if you couldn't tell. <laughs> I love it. I'll always love this movie. Well, I thought about this, Steve. I thought about this greatly because you and I talked about Superman, doing Superman possibly in the future, but I have a different one. Next time Steve and I meet, we'll be doing Sonic the Hedgehog for the 2020 for the video game Pantheon. You know, my son would really like that. And I told him that I was going to be doing a podcast. He says, well, what movie are you doing? He says, we're doing The Big Lebowski. And he goes... And he kind of got like that, like that pouty, angry face. I'm like, what? What's wrong? I'm just like, no, you've never seen it. But he goes, I thought she told Uncle Joe you were doing Paw Patrol. <laughs> <laughs> well, Uncle Joe gave the Knicks on that. And I don't know if that's, that's a movie that I would think I need to qualify for a Pantheon somewhere. The, the, um, the, but no, the animated, Sonic. The animated I, Pantheon? No. So Sonic. Sonic. I am all in for Sonic. I like that. You can email the Movie Planet using the address movieplanetpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Podbean and give us a four or five star review. Like us on Facebook, Twitter, and follow our Instagram. The opinions expressed on the Movie Planet Podcast are those of the individual hosts. The Movie Planet Podcast is not affiliated with, prepared for, approved, or licensed by any entity that created any films discussed or reviewed herein. All movie clips and music included in the podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. Steve, any last words? 
I want to give a shout out. I talked to him yesterday. I want to give a shout out to my buddy Brian for introducing me to this movie. He's a big fan of the Movie Planet podcast. And I really hope he enjoys this one. I told him I was going to say, hey, I'll let you know when this comes out. He goes, I've already subscribed. So I dedicate this one to you, dude, or your dudeness, or El Dudorino, if you're into that whole brevity thing. He's going to be like, who's this asshole you're doing this podcast with? He hates this movie? What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening, Brian, and happy movie watching. (laughs) 